Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, giant monster who spits out evil clones, and I'm joined as always by a twisted, hateful, hideous version of my co-host Scott Daly. How are you doing today, Scott? Kill. I'm just kidding, Matt. I'm pretty good. Although I do keep leaking fluids from my malformed face parts whenever I try to talk. Yeah, that, that happens. <laughs> it does. Uh, as you said, this is the podcast where you, a worm expert, guide me, a first-time reader through Wild Bo's world of superheroes, supervillains, and everything in between, as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, we are tackling the first half of Arc 18, Queen. I can't believe we're on 18 already. It seems crazy. No. It seems like we just started this yesterday. I know. This includes chapters 18.1 through 18.6. And also includes two other bonus interludes, so eight chapters in total. Um, in this arc, we pick up almost immediately right after arc 16 left off, and uh, we watch the Undersiders and uh, the and and their group uh, deal with the sudden and deadly threat of Noel. Yeah, um, and and this this is already we're, we're we're picking right up. We we still haven't really seen Noel, um, which no. is which is kind of cool. Um, I guess. I mean, it's it's interesting that we're still in the in the tension building phase, you might say, um, even though this is this is the big, you know, the big arc where we can expect that to start happening. Yeah, um, I, I was a little surprised here, and I think we'll get into this when we when we get to the beat by beat. But I was expecting us to kind of immediately move into the action, especially after we took a whole arc in the middle off uh, in arc seventeen to to learn the backstory of the travelers, um, but. This is this is build up. This is very much at least this half specifically is is very much calm before the storm. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's people positioning, uh, you know, conversations being had, bargains being made to get ready for this big, huge threat that's about to crash all over the city again, again, <laughs> again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and yeah, it's, it's a lot of build up. It's very good stuff, though. I think there's a lot in here. You know, we, we see Taylor kind of deal with the aftermath of her decision, but we don't see her deal with it as much as I thought we were going to see her deal with it. Um, but th- there's there's a lot of very interesting, interesting stuff here. Um, and then and then the latter half of the section gets a little action heavy, as I'm sure a lot of next week will as well. But uh, good stuff. Yeah, um, there's I think another interesting kind of unique thing about this this part is that the two interludes we're going to talk about are more um tangential not in a bad way but sort of tangential to the main story um they're both kind of geographically distant from um from our main storyline and they both concern characters who who are more peripheral but uh it's again really really interesting and 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 new way of uh, approaching that yeah and i think we've talked about this before and we've talked about those bonus interludes that fall in between arcs as, as opposed to the the end of arc interlude um, and how th- that that varies. And I think there is still some stuff, especially in, in the first one we're going to get to that ties us back or is meant to at least uh, image like shadow back to what, what's going on in, in the main story. But, yeah, you're right. They're very tangential and and uh, not any less important, though. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, uh, let's move on into comments and questions from our audience, and and then we'll move on into the story. Uh, so first of all, uh, Wildbo stopped by the Reddit, uh, which we always appreciate, um, and and he he made a few comments. the the main uh, The main thing that I wanted to highlight was that he he said that this was a, a controversial love it or hate it. This last arc, um, arc. 
17 was a controversial love it or hate it arc, um, which I mean he he would know right. Um, and, and and there were certainly some comments in in the subreddit that that's that that said that they did not like this arc so much. Yeah. Um, and that just really surprises me. And I mean I'm not I'm not judging anyone. Everyone's reaction is valid, obviously. Um, but it's just it's so surprising to me because it's like my favorite. I don't know. I just I view it as this as this great short story. Um, so that's um, yeah. that was my reaction to that. Yeah, you're right. This was really I think the first I remember seeing people come into the Reddit and just flat out say I didn't like any of this. Um, and that really had I mean, we had people come in and, and people have agreed with us when we said we didn't like some things as much as we liked other things. But yeah, I mean, we had there was there was a few. So I, I on one hand, I I um kind of understand the divisiveness a little bit because I think uh, the arc kind of hinges on if you sympathize with Krauss at all. And um, a lot of people said they, they just could not, that he was too much of a jerk. Um, you and I both did. So I think that that lends to us appreciating what the story is doing a little more. If you can't find your way to, to sympathize with him, if you can't see um, him as, as remotely worth of, of any kind of kindness, then a lot of the beats in this just won't work for you. So I think that that makes sense. Um, I don't know if that's just, I, I, and I don't know if that's just us like relating to him because like we had many of these traits as we said last week or not. I'm not sure, but um, that was, I guess one of the things that I, I pulled forth as, as a reason why at least. Yeah. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. I think we both resonated with, with, Krauss's character mm -hmm. and and that that helps certainly in terms of forming that empathic connection yeah sure uh, so then uh, we we got an email actually uh from andrew o regarding kraus and the case of vials and i'm just going to read this in full um i found the scene where kraus takes the vials to be very effective at no point does he consciously take the case or even appear to decide to do so in fact as i read it he dismissed the, the, uh, dismissed taking the case as a bad idea when he slammed it shut, only to end up carrying it with him as he left, almost as if maybe taking it may have been somehow influenced from outside. Nah, that's just crazy talk. <laughs> yeah, Andrew, I liked this comment a lot. Um, I don't think we really highlighted this. We, we were so much talking about how everything seems to be planned and cause and effect that we didn't we missed this little moment here, which you're absolutely right. I went back and read it and it is very it is a very interesting um, series of events here where he we notice the case he looks at the case he looks at what's in the case realizes what it is and then suddenly he's leaving and he has it with him and it's like he's there to look for first aid he doesn't find first aid he doesn't find anything but he's taking the case with him and it's it no at no point in his internal monologue do we hear him ever make that decision consciously yeah, I, I love this. Um, it causes me to, to kind of visualize like if this were a movie you would or, or, or a show, you would have like the shot of Krauss kind of look surprised and slam the case shut. And then you might cut to him walking. But the, the shot would be like from the shoulders up as he's looking around nervously. And then he runs into Cody and they talk for a moment. And then Cody says, what's in the what's in the case? And then. Yeah. And then and then the, and suddenly you get a full shot of Krauss and you realize for the first time that he's holding the case and he looks at it with surprise. Yeah. I like, I like instantly rendered this in my head. Um, yeah. No, that's that's how that would be. That's great. Um, yeah. So that I, I, I like I, I did not notice this. So thank you for drawing uh, our attention to this. Uh, on, on the Reddit, uh, Calinero comments, um, they've been looking forward to arc 17 for some time. 
Um, but they really and and one thing that we did not uh, discuss that that I, in retrospect, wish we had because I think it is really a great moment was uh, this too. moment. And I'm just going to read this in full too. But it's from the story. It's uh, it's it's from Krause's POV toward the end, and he's he's thinking to himself. The others didn't know quite how bad things had gone then. He'd managed to shield them from the news reports. The total body count had kept them moving from city to city until the story died away. They knew people had died. They didn't know it was 40. It was bad, a bad situation overall. One that Kraus retreating from the house, in, uh, sorry, one that had Kraus retreating from the house in the dead of night, just to find the most remote location he could reach to weep, to scream his frustration, rage, shame, and guilt, and not worry about the others hearing it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I I completely understand that, like we were saying, the people that just can't identify or can't uh, find a way to have any empathy for Kraus. But I almost don't know how you can read that passage and, and not develop any of it because, man, like I, I too am very upset that we did not cover this the first time around. I wish we had covered this in our conversation, but I'm so glad that Clarno brought it up for us here because this is powerful. Not only is it uh, so powerful and, and, and illuminating for the character, it's just really good writing. Like the, the, the emotion and the feeling is all there. Um, and it's just a really powerful passage. And I, I wish we had we had brought it up. Yeah, it really it, it does a lot because Kraus hides his his feelings so much and puts up a front so much that to show this this crack in his in his facade and show that like he's really he's really actually falling apart but but he's putting yeah. on a brave face for them. Uh it's it's actually crucial to a full picture of of how he's doing by the end of arc 17. Yeah, especially uh in comparison to what we get in this arc which is we see uh Luke Ballista tell the uh, ballistic. I don't know why I said that. I'm thinking of <laughs> <laughs> thinking of Game of Thrones. Yeah, there you go. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, ballistic tell um, tell everyone his his view, his point of view on the whole thing, and how Kraus was just making terrible decisions and lying to everyone, and and he paints it as if um, Kraus was doing this selfishly and and for his own good but really i mean really we see in, in here this kraus that like is doing this to try to protect everyone from this stuff and maybe there's there's a selfish tinge to it maybe he feels responsible for it so he's trying to 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 play down how terrible everything it is because it makes him look better but i think it's just part it's it's guilt um and it says right here that he that he has all this shame and guilt related to it and like he just never expressed that to his team. They never got to see that side of him. So mm -hmm. it's it's very powerful that we get to. Yeah, absolutely. And then the final comment today um, from Azazel Crowley uh, was regarding the quarantine procedures that they have in place around the Seamurg. Um, Scott, do you want to maybe summarize this one? This was kind of something you wanted to, to address. Yeah, so ba basically I think Azazel was responding to the fact that I called the, the DDID um, quarantine procedures, barbaric and terrible, um, from my perspective. And, and I think Azazel brings up a lot of points, like they, uh, kind of explain exactly why, um, why these measures would be good that, um, they kind of related it to the inverse of the vials, like the vials make everyone super powered and therefore they're the effects of the, the CMERX plan on them will be amplified. Um, and this quarantine procedure does the exact opposite of this, which makes the effects kind of muted a little bit. Um, and, and I think this was a really good point. They said something that um, it gets to the crux of why I have a problem with it though. Um, I'm just going to quote Azazel directly here. Um, so basically 
uh, just reverse the logic to the vials being a bad idea. You make them subhuman in terms of treatment, it's an accurate word, instead of parahuman. Limit their agency and thus dam- the damage they can accomplish in the future. This is all true, but I think this is the part of it that I find barbaric because it's basically punishing someone for doing something that they haven't done yet. It's pre-crime. Um, it's um, making literally making someone subhuman, taking away someone's humanity, taking away someone's agency, because in the future, they maybe will do something. Maybe not. And I think that's a problem. And, and that gets into a whole consequentialist argument again that I don't really want to get into. But um, I, I, I think that's, it's accurate to say that's kind of a barbaric practice. Yeah, um, I mean, I definitely agree. It's barbaric. And one one thing that I always think about is like, um, I guess different readers come away with different impressions of what the simmer is is capable of. But like, I would just assume, and I don't think I'm like filtering in future knowledge of the story. But like, dealing with a creature like this, I would just be like, well, sh- like, she's gonna see the fact that we're gonna put this person in quarantine. So therefore there's not going to like either she's going to arrange her manipulation strategy to work despite the fact that the quarantine happened or um it's it, it's not going to it's not going to matter whether we put them in quarantine either way i don't know if i'm articulating that well or no. i don't even know if i've articulated it well in my own head but like i i almost view it as like a a um a psychological like a, a a thing the heroes are doing to make themselves and everyone else feel better like oh yeah yeah we've we've quarantined the Simmer's influence. And it's like, no, you haven't like, like she, she, she accomplished exactly what she wanted to accomplish. Just like she, I mean, just like she did this time, they put, I'm sure they put tons of people in quarantine and guess who gets out of quarantine? Scott free, freaking travelers. Yeah. So, I mean, I I don't know. I, I, I don't, I guess there's a justification, but like, I don't, think that they are successful (laughs) yeah it it feels like a a massive overreaction to a problem that they don't really know how to face i think it's very similar to how we reacted with air travel after 9-11 we went nuts because we were just like we can't let this happen again we have to stop it we have to reign control over it and at the end of the day it really became more of just a symbol and an illusion of security rather than Mm -hmm. actual security itself um and and i think it very much is like that And, and you're you're the question is, what are you giving up for that? What are you taking away from people to achieve that illusion? Um, and, and I think here it's too far. It's too much. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, like in the story universe, if we had like a thinker be like, Oh no, this is a good protocol and this actually works. That would be one thing. But, but since we haven't had that, we've just had like the PRT say, these are the, you know, we, we know the PRT kind of like is about PR. So, um, yeah, and yeah. and and if in the future we do learn that these plans were put in place by a thinker who knew that all this was going to happen and was able to accurately predict, and we're only quarantining the people that we know really will do these things, then I will completely stand back on my statements. But until we get that confirmation, I just feel like this is it's too much. Yeah. All right, Scott. I think those are some really good comments, and and it, it was a really good arc. So I feel like it merited kind of revisiting. Um, but uh, yeah. now it's time to move on into the beat-by-beat discussion of arc, the first part of arc 18. All right. So we plunge right back into the moment uh, where we discovered that Noel had escaped uh, at the end of arc 16. Uh, but of course, this moment now has infinitely more context. Yeah, this is great. It's like, it's delicious, <laughs> the amount of context <laughs> we have. And it's, yeah. 
it's like you can imagine your head the story just carrying on without this interlude and i mean i think things would still be exciting things would still be um you'd be ready and raring to go but you would miss so much of that because one of the things we didn't talk about when we were doing the over arc uh wild bow plays with dramatic irony in this arc a lot mm-hmm. and that all needed something to be established so that's what arc 17 did and i think it, it helps with the pacing it helps with the fun of some of this stuff yeah yeah i mean at, at this point we we know noel whereas Whereas if we hadn't had that, that arc, we wouldn't know Noel at all, other than a couple moments of, of webcam footage. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, um, Dinah lets them know that the odds are very low that Noel will do much damage before dawn. Um, and this is the first of many times she shows us and Taylor how valuable she can be strategically. Yeah, and there's our ticking clock again. Um you have till dawn you can you've got till dawn to prepare to set up all your stuff, to develop your strategies, and then Boom. Um, like I said at the beginning, I really thought this week's reading was going to be us diving right into that fight, into that conflict. But this first half is is set up that calm before the storm, that pre Noel v the world um, setup, and it, it, it's it's really good. And and we kind of get that yeah that established right here with Dinah's words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Tattletail wants us to go uh, wants to go to the heroes as soon as possible to get help with the situation, since she's already pegged the danger of the situation at Inbringer level or S class, as we'll come to better understand. Yeah. Regent, however, uh, help uh, hopefully helpfully points out that the heroes will probably won't feel much like helping the Undersiders. Yeah, maybe it has something to do with the fact that they've uh, assisted in the removal of two PRT directors now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, they they don't have a good track record. So Telltale mentions uh, her current two theories about Noelle. Uh, either she really is turning into an inbringer, and she's eventually going to shed all of the human parts and become completely inhuman, or she's the result of somebody trying to make an inbringer. Um, and then Telltale lists a few possible culprits, including Cauldron and a list of capes, which includes Bonesaw, Nilbog, and our new acquaintance Blasto, as well as a few other fun names. Yeah, everyone got really mad at me last week for making fun of Blasto's name. Um, and I know people, I know it has a double meaning that, that actually perfectly fits with him being a biotinker. I know that. Um, I don't care. It's still hilariously kid Winnie and <laughs> wonderfully nerdy, and I, I like it a lot. Yeah, I imagine it as being like a, a villain from The Tick, like the, the yeah, kind yeah, of name yeah. that it sounds like to me. Um, this, this though, is this really minor beat of dramatic irony, just like we were talking about first, that that really serves to just remind us that we do know what happened in Noel, um, but all of our characters don't. Um, I, I really do think it's... I'm really interested to see if we ever find out exactly how Noel happened. This feels like the type of story that we will... Um, I got to thinking about this a lot, and I was trying to figure out, you know how i think what happens um and, and maybe this is me spoiling speculation but um i was thinking that during those battering alexandria chapters it was mentioned that they put that that there was an, an agent in the the vials that served to prevent uh unwanted mutations and so it got me thinking well maybe that stuff's more dense than the other liquid so it sinks to the bottom and it's not fully mixed it's oil and, and vinegar so noel drank the top half which had Oh my God, powers, but little mutation preventer stuff. And then Oliver drank the bottom half, which had almost none of powers, but lots of mutation prevention, which kind of um, like explains the difference in their powers um, and why they're different like that. Um, and it was funny because I was writing this this afternoon and, and I hadn't actually parsed through that until I wrote it all down. And then as soon as I finished, I was like, wow, that's 
it's really it makes a lot of sense. I think that's right. So I'm going to go ahead and say I nailed it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. All, all of his power is almost just like be as normal as possible. Yeah. Be, be the definition of normal. Um, yeah. That's an interesting, uh, interesting theory there, Scott. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Regent suggests asking Dinah for more information at this point. And Skidder wants to make sure that nobody is pressing Dinah. Uh, but Dinah says, yeah, I'll help now. I fear I won't be useful for much longer. And Skidder thinks, who talks like that? Yeah, this is a really interesting beat that we're going to see a few more times throughout the arc is is people sounding a lot like Coil, um, because this this is very much like I don't think Skidder actually realizes it in this moment, but that does sound a lot like Coil. Um, and we're going to see Taylor talk a little bit like Coil as well. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's very interesting to see kind of the long lasting effect of Coil on these people. Um, I think we see that these two chapters are really all about how permanently Coyle has messed up Dinah in every single way almost as we see everything that's wrong with her long term and it's almost terrible but um I I like that beat and I think we'll come back to it later when Skidder also talks like him yeah I think an alternate slant on that is that Skidder is just hearing Coyle everywhere because she's kind of haunted uh even though she's not consciously letting herself be bothered by it she's subconsciously bothered by it I like that yeah so Dinah can already see her impending horrific drug withdrawal so clearly that she's basically already experiencing it. Yeah, this is the closest we've been to Dinah um, in the story so far. This is the closest we've been to a precog in the story so far. And I, I like that this allows us to see like <laughs> how almost horrible it would be to have these kind of powers. Um, and I like how this kind of directly compares and contrasts to the Seamurg last arc when everyone was suffering under the thumb of a precog. And here we see someone suffering because they're a precog and they know exactly what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And they so much to, so much to where they, they can feel it now, even though it's future pain. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, we'll talk about it as it comes, but there's a lot of moments where you're just like, wow, this is a, this is a curse actually. So yeah, they start asking, uh, uh, Diana questions. Um, so apparently there's going to be almost 100% odds of violence in the next 24 hours. Ominously, the chance that someone stops Noelle, defeats her, or kills her just gets a shake of the head. Uh, and we don't know how to interpret that, but it doesn't sound good. Yeah, I, I tried not to read too much into this, but I let my brain go in about 100 different directions. <laughs> um, none of which I'll share just yet, but I'm sure we'll get there. All right. Yeah, so I, I feel like it's important to remember going forward that the Undersiders um, are they're going forward from this point on without sleep. Like they've been up all night and then they're going on into the next day without, without rest. And I don't know about you, Scott, but whenever I engage in superpowered battles without a good night's uh, sleep behind me, things generally don't go well. <laughs> yeah, Matt, we, we get tired and sluggish after podcasting for two hours, <laughs> let alone sprinting around the city, dodging cars and coming up with complex theories on the, on the fly. Yeah. I don't know. I think we could do it if, if, it, if we needed to. I mean, Yes, let's just, <laughs> let's just be honest. Come on. Right. So uh, most of the Undersiders head to a shady supervillain hospital that Tattletale has drummed up. On the way there, Rachel seems unusually interested in Dinah. Uh, and I could go on for paragraphs, actually, about this little slice of Dinah right here. So, like, we've talked a lot about um, various characters sort of serving story functions. And I think that 
um, or, or thematic functions. And I think that Dinah is almost fatalism personified. She doesn't even bother asking to pet the puppy because she can already see the outcome of asking. Um, but Scott, what's really going to bake your noodle later is wondering if maybe she saw that Skitter would notice her silence and then choose to intercede, resulting in her getting to pet the puppy if she just kept her mouth shut. Because that's what Skitter does. She she makes the point that Rachel's dogs need to get to know humans, so Rachel does let Dinah pet Bentley. Brain exploded. <laughs> Those of you that aren't patrons can't see our script right now, but Matt put a picture of the Oracle from the Matrix in here. <laughs> Damn it, Matt. Um... But besides your mind-bending precog moments, um, I want to live in this moment for the rest of this podcast. Uh-huh. So it's just no more bad things, no more hard choices, no more death. Just Rachel letting Dinah pet her puppy forever. Um, I I adore this. I love it so much. It's this real moment of kindness from Rachel um, that we haven't seen her really extend to anyone before. Um, and I think this shows so much how she's changed as a person. And on top of that, it shows how much respect she has for Taylor now. They are back to their BFF status and, and even more so than ever before. Um, and it's just this wonderful, you know, m- bittersweet moment surrounded by this world of terror. And you have to you have to remember that we have this this Noel thing looming over all of this, um, this this ticking clock of Noel badness. And we have these these genuine moments of kindness and i just love them i just yeah. love them so much yeah and, and one thing that stands out only in contrast is that we're not seeing all these moments of of like rachel just being angry all the time because it used to be like yeah. every like rachel had one emotion and it was various flavors of anger um and now like she was like curious about something and yeah. and asked a question and yeah it was it's it's all wonderful yeah yeah and rachel's gonna be th- put through a lot of shit this arc um mm-hmm. stuff that that old rachel never would have put up with and she does almost silently and she just mm-hmm. if if taylor says we're doing this then then she's on board mm-hmm. yeah yeah good point so uh, before they go into the hospital skitter asks if there will be trouble and dinah says that there's a 25 percent chance and in those cases where there is trouble it's usually skitter causing the trouble 80% of the time, Matt. <laughs> I'm just going to repeat my Twitter joke here because I liked it so much. Um, you don't need to have thinker superpowers to know that if there's going to be trouble, it's probably going to be from Taylor. Yeah. Boom. Got her. That's, that's funny. That was a funny moment of, of like self-awareness from her to be like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And she finishes up the, that, that whole interaction and says, okay, I'll try to be good. And I'll, okay, I'll try to be good is like the name of Taylor's memoir. And she probably wrote it while in prison. <laughs> so the hospital receptionist has a condescending voice and manner, which, surprise, surprise, irritates Skitter. Yeah, and this is one of those unreliable narrator moments where I really wonder if it's condescendingly nice or just nice. Because um, Taylor, of course, immediately interprets it as, as condescending uh, because she's Taylor. Um, yeah. Part of me thinks it's not quite as condescending as she thinks. I think that's probably a fair guess actually so we have this moment here where um they're gonna put dinah and taylor in the same room and and ask uh if if she's bashful and taylor says uh i'm blind and no i guess i'm not bashful blind grew said his head snapping around as he looked at me rachel did as well um so first of all grew knows that she is in fact bashful um and he's also Probably not happy that his maybe girlfriend didn't mention that she was blind. Yeah, and and it's really at this point that I realized in my reading that 
uh, Brian and Taylor have not interacted in any meaningful way um, in a while now. Um, you have the one moment where Brian kind of like says why to her when she he thinks that she's betrayed them again. And then you have they he she kind of coaches him through the phone calls with Coyle. But after after he after she pulls the trigger, uh, it's Rachel that comforts her. Uh, Brian and her do not talk at all. Um, she never like goes to him for consoling. Um, he never tries to pull her aside and talk to her. Um, she obviously hasn't communicated to him this little fact of the fact that she can't see anymore. Um, their relationship is not real. Like it's just not, but they seem to be, uh, blind to it. Yeah. Matt blind. (laughs) Blind. Well, I think, (laughs) I mean, I think this is just who they are and that's kind of the problem is, is like Brian doesn't know how to be that guy. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, there, there was a moment earlier where, where he was like, she would like break down coughing and he would just be like hospital. And then she would just like ignore him again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just like this. It's become such a pattern that he doesn't even he doesn't even really try. He's just like, ah, hospital. No, okay, don't listen. Fine, you know. Yeah. Because she doesn't yeah. listen to him ever. This is we've talked about this before, but it's become chronic now. Yeah, and it's going to definitely continue throughout the rest of the section for sure. Yeah, definitely. Skitter asks Dinah about Jack Slash and the end of the world. Uh, Coyle had indeed been trying to narrow down the details or to work out some strategy through Dinah's power, but hadn't had much luck. Um, And he also hadn't tried all that hard since the numbers never seemed to change no matter what he asked. Um, Although now we do know that the odds of Jack ending the world are higher than ever. They're almost 98%. Oh, good. That's that's great. Yeah, good. That's a nice upbeat moment as we open this arc. Um, she also mentions that Skitter is there at, at, at this end of the world scenario, um, different, but there, and the others are there sometimes, um, and that there are going to be five big groups with lots of capes and armies. Oh shit, Matt, my speculation drive spinning real fast, (laughs) Uh, not fast enough to come up with anything concrete, mind you, but, but here we are, um, my guess is that the different Taylor could be like a second trigger event, but I have no evidence to actually back that up. Just, just nonsense. Um, also the fact that Taylor is always present at the end of the world. Like I think she said that Skitter is always there. Um, and, but other people are there sometimes other people are there. Um, are they not there depending on, on which path. And I, I think like this is, at first I was like, this is a reveal, like Skitter's present at the end of the world. That's a big deal. But the more I thought about it, like, of course she is like, it, it doesn't, it, that's not saying she's responsible for it per se, just that if the world's going to end the type of person Taylor is, she's going to be there, whether she's trying to stop it or not. Like she's just going to be involved somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Skitter, Skitter then asks, um, <laughs> If she theoretically drove around America and just killed everyone she could, would that change the odds? And the answer is no, it wouldn't. What the fuck, Taylor? Why <laughs> would you even ask that? Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you know that she doesn't really intend to do it, but also like it, it's one of these beats where the fact that her head goes there is right. just a little tiny bit alarming. Yeah. Um, so then I'm just going to quote this here. Um, Dinah is saying, you killed Coyle, didn't you? I saw 32% chance it was you who did it. 5% chance you couldn't and asked someone else to. 60% chance you were dead. I killed him, I admitted. But that was a special case. Okay, she said. <laughs> I know it really wasn't there, but I read Dinah's reaction as kind of sarcastic. 
Like yeah. she's like, yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I almost think she's just like, I mean, I, I tend to read things like that as like her kind of knowing that she shouldn't ask any follow-up questions. Right. <laughs> like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so, so she's just like, okay, whatever you say. Um, and, and then of course, um, she says, uh, but, but I had a lot of time to wait and eventually the idea of being rescued mattered more than his life did. That's pretty grim. I said, uh, to which I respond, Taylor, that's literally why you killed him. The idea <laughs> of rescuing Dinah mattered more to you than his life did. That's, that's exactly what you did. Yeah. And, and that's such like concrete evidence of Taylor's just general disconnect with her actions and judgments as compared to other people's actions and judgments and, and the judgment she places on their judgments. Um, like she, we're, like we're in this moment where we're not seeing her really think about or process the death at all. Um, she kind of, there's, there's a couple to only a couple times in this arc where she thinks about it directly and is okay with it generally. But yeah, she just like, is really quick to like, like look at this quote of Dinah's, which is basically her exact, rationale as grim and not good yeah right yeah well when someone else says it's kind of of course yeah um and then and then i like this tiny beat where the doctor walks into the room and sees them both already looking at the door uh because of course she's walking in on a precog and a powerful sensory cape who both knew that she was coming yeah just a further example of how creepy uh taylor comes off generally to people (laughs) at all times Uh, I'm, i'm glad you pulled that out that's great yeah yeah so Taylor's diagnosed with a fractured rib and given eye drops for her eyes. Um, Dinah can apparently already see the course of her withdrawal and knows that she needs to go through it uh, the hard way, meaning not not being drugged out, uh, in order to avoid a relapse. So it, it'll be a bad week for her, but she's confident that she'll be okay beyond that. Yeah, and I like this beat a lot because we see kind of the benefits and the drawbacks of her power in one moment. Um, on the one hand, she knows exactly how much pain she's going to go through and she knows so much that she can feel it now. But on the other hand, she always knows exactly when it's going to stop. So, I mean, that's, that's an advantage. You know, exactly like if I can put up with this for 10 minutes or if I can put up with this for two weeks or whatever, it's going to be over. So advantage, disadvantage. Yeah, definitely a double-edged sword. Um, speaking of which, uh, Skitter suspects at, at this point that this is formerly Kaiser's supervillain hospital. Yeah, uh, I, I like this beat a lot um, because we we showed to Taylor's Taylor's detective skills uh, kind of working in full swing right here. She has a lot of clues, but I think her biggest clue is almost what would make me want to get in a fight with someone if they're just a doctor? All right. Nazis. It's, it's probably Nazis. Yeah, right. Yeah. Kind of reverse engineering from that from that Dinah prediction. So uh, eventually Skitter detects some apprehension in Dinah and the girl finally reveals that her odds of getting to go home are still only about 50%. And that's when Skitter realizes that there's a strong temptation to keep Dinah with her. She can keep Dinah safe, see her through her withdrawal, ask her questions and do the greatest amount of good for the greatest number. Um, it's what a good, good consequentialist hero would do. Right, Scott. Um, but, but Skitter on realizing this assures her that she's not going to bring, uh, she's not going to keep her. Um, she's going to bring her home as soon as possible. Yeah. And this is so important because uh, Taylor has murdered coil a- and in this post Taylor as a murderer moment, we see that, that level of temptation to basically become him on some level. Um, and, and Dinah can see it. And even, even our 
compartmentalization Taylor can see it. She's aware of it. And because she can see it in this moment, she chooses not to do it. And this does in this moment, feel like a moment of growth for her. She made this horrible choice and she justified it her way to get to it. But now that it's done, maybe now she's taking a step back and looking at what she's been doing and, and maybe is finally ready to change. Um, I think we're going to hit this beat a few more times and see whether that's truly a moment of growth or not. Um, it's kind of up in the air, but um, I liked Dinah's response to I'm going to let you go, though, because it says a full minute passed before she responded with a murmur. Thank you. And I really like this because we have to assume that Dinah was almost like scanning to see if if what Taylor was promising was actually really going to happen or not. Um, like she, you could just assume she's kind of doing this at regular intervals and and it's just a funny little beat. Yeah, like like did the numbers actually change when she said that? Right. And, and I wonder I, we, I wonder if they did. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder right. if they did. Yeah, I think it makes sense that they that they would at that moment, um, since of course that's what ends up happening. But yeah, so uh, we move into eighteen point two, and the conversation between Taylor and Dinah picks up again. Although eventually we realize, not at first, but eventually we realize that uh, quite a bit of time has passed uh, since the end of the last chapter. They're just they're, they're still together though. Uh, heartbreakingly though, Dinah is just certain that her family won't take her back. This is not due to her power. She can't use it right now. Um, she's just really, really afraid of the idea that they won't take her back. Uh, she thinks her family's scared of her, and she's worried that she looks weird, and now they won't want her. Ugh, Matt, this entire chapter is, you're right, heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Dinah, who has been the source of all of Taylor's motivation for now. Thousands upon thousands of words in the story have been committed to Taylor freeing this girl to get back home with her family. And we're finally here in this moment. Um, and again, we have this terrible destructive Noel hanging over our heads throughout all this moment. And this poor girl is terrified that, that everything that, that she's too far gone, that everything that's happened has, has prevented her from ever actually being able to get what she wants, which is to be home with her family. And it's just so, it's so awful. And like, we've kind of been trained in more, um, to expect these awful things to happen. So we're kind of there with her and we're like, oh, like in my, in this moment, I was really like, this might actually be true. Like her parents might just not want her, not want to deal with her anymore. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's almost even worse and it's almost been going on since before she was kidnapped because she, she thinks, and, and she says to Taylor, like, I'm not even human anymore. Uh, which at first seems kind of like an overblown concern. But then we realize this is probably a really reasonable thought for a young, like a very young person to have when they become a quote unquote parahuman. Uh, and they don't, they don't necessarily know what that means. They just, they just know that it's, that it's scary and serious. And they assume that para means half. So, so half human. Um, but, but Taylor does know what para means because her mom was, was like an English professor or something. Um, and she explains that para can mean extra or beyond. Um, this is a this this little tiny thing here is a great character beat because it it shows that Taylor pays attention to things like like words um, as a way of honoring her mom. And this is one of the few moments where we get a mention of her mom that doesn't just gut her. Yeah, I'm really glad you you pulled that out, and I noticed it too. It it's very weird, Matt, because like basically two chapters beyond Taylor has become a murderer. 
um, we are seeing these weird moments of growth. And and we talked about the other one a few minutes ago, but now we have this one of not only of her speaking and her, mo- her mother in a positive way, because like a few arcs ago, she was using words like her mother had left her for dying. Um, now she's doing this this tiny thing to honor her memory. And it's not for anyone else. Like this wasn't her doing it to show anyone she was honoring her memory. This wasn't, uh, this was a symbolic internal gesture for herself. And it just shows like how complicated this character is that like, I am, I'm very surprised that after this moment of no return, Taylor is a killer. Um, we, we have these beats of, but look, she's also growing and she's also changing. And it's like, it's like almost like confusing. Like you're almost not sure what to make of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we pointed out before how Taylor's growth and or development, to use a more maybe more neutral word, can be kind of herky jerky. Like she'll she'll seem to be developing and 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 maybe learning from her mistakes, and then she'll backslide, um, which I think is really realistic, and that's the way people really are. Um, and I think that's maybe an example of of that here. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So the conversation is briefly interrupted, so Dinah can can vomit. Uh, but when she resumes talking, it's clear that this fear of her parents not taking her is a bit of an irrational fixation at this point, probably made worse by the withdrawal. So Taylor, instead of kind of arguing with her, settles for just silently combing her hair. Um, and and she's, as, she's, as she does this, she's thinking of various questions she could ask Dinah. Do we come out of this okay? We'll come out of this okay. Can we stay in touch? I'm sorry I played any part in this happening to you. Um, but she can't bring herself to. Yeah, uh, the rhythm of those sentences is really, really great because we do alternate between Taylor asking for assurance from Dinah and then Taylor offering assurance to Dinah in her head. And she's so lost. She's unsure of what to do. She's unsure of what to say. So she just does, decides not to do anything. It is this really, really great beat. And it, it's it's combined with this moment of her combing her hair. And there's something very... Uh, maternal about that and we haven't really seen that from taylor i don't think um we've seen like her like um we've seen her be a good leader and a good boss but but that maternal instinct is not something we've ever really seen from her and i just i really like this beat yeah i mean it's it's a bit of softness which which she she's very concerned about her image and seeming fearsome and i mean she's she's like alone in a car basically with yeah dino although although i did notice that like the the mercenary in like the front seat can doubtless hear this whole conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, th- I think Taylor has so prioritized uh, Dinah just in general that um, it, it just doesn't matter right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the vehicle that they're in reaches Dinah's parents' house and Dinah asks Skitter uh, to go to the door and see if they want her. So Skitter goes and she slams the iron knocker and Dinah's father answers with a with a heavy frying pan in his hand. Um, and he tries to slam the door in her, but he 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 backs down, um, basically just backs down at the sight of her. Yeah. And what a sight it is, right? Yeah. Uh, because Wildbud does this really great job of, of setting the scene here. She's got this thick cloud of bugs flying around her and she's backlit by the moon. So it's this dark shape surrounded by buzzing stuff with small rays of, of moonlight, like alighting her general shape and then maybe penetrating the spots where the bugs aren't clumped too too much. And so it's this really like overpowering image that you can see in your head. And, and I completely understand why he slammed the door. 
Yeah, um, we'll we'll save fully emphasizing this till late till later. But the the degree of being covered by bugs has gotten completely out of hand with yeah. Taylor. Yeah, yeah. So Skitter warns them about the state of Dinah, um, and and then goes on to fetch her from her car. Um, and Worm finally gives us a you know a genuinely heartbreaking positive moment as the parents hold their lost child. Yeah, and I, and I don't know about you the first time you read this, but I was just waiting for something to go wrong, waiting for it to turn somehow, waiting for it to not be real. Like, I don't know, what, maybe her parents were plants by coil in case this happened, like as a contingency effect, um, all this other stuff that could have gone wrong. I'm just waiting for it. And it doesn't come. And I'm so happy it didn't come. Uh, Wildbow's tone is, is so important throughout this stuff. And especially, you know, the, the book as a whole, he's exploring some really really dark stuff throughout the run of this book so far and and dark stuff tends to get like really dour and depressing as, as you peer into it but every so often as a reader you need little victories to come you need this moment of of catharsis and and, and genuine happiness and he gives it to us here and it's it's such a wonderful scene yeah yeah you can't you can't shock the subject every time you have yeah. to give them some positive rewards so that you build up that intermittent reinforcement schedule, which is oh God. such a powerful oh God. training method. I've been conditioned. Oh my God. Yep. Yep. We've been conditioned by this story, Scott. Um, so the, as, as she's leaving, the dad calls out, thank you. Um, but Skitter and Taylor can't accept it. Um, after wanting to be thanked for so long, she doesn't feel she deserves it. And I think this ties into what I just said above, right? Because um, Skitter, just like us, is looking into this dark world of terrible choices, a world of death, a world of sacrifice, a world of misery, perpetual trauma. And when you're in this world, when you're looking down the barrel of this world, sometimes you just need a fucking win. And Wildbow gives it to us, the readers, but not to Taylor. She can't accept it. And, and that is so dangerous when you're talking about her, her mental health and well-being going forward. That's a really, really interesting point to to bring out that that we are not we are definitely not feeling the same thing that our protagonist is feeling right here, and yeah. that's certainly intentional. Like usually, the the tool of conveying drama is you make the reader empathize with the character, and then you you can you can sort of communicate those feelings through the character. But but there's there's a device at play here where we're actually happy that this has happened, but our, our surrogate is not. And that's, that's really cool. Thanks for pointing yeah, that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So, so she, she thinks to herself, um, I wasn't sure I felt good about that. I'd gotten this far by making the most out of every resource I had available. Um, and by being smart about things, uh, this, and by that, she means leaving Dinah here. This was throwing away a resource, tying my own hands. The decision felt dumb, even as I knew it was the right thing to do. So now that she's made this decision, Scott, like, is this character growth or is this something else? Yeah, and I honestly, I honestly don't know. Taylor is in, in this huge amount of flux right now. She's changing. She really is. And... and and I think I think the, the conflicting beats here, the moments where we see growth and the moments where we don't see growth, we see growth in, in some of the ways, but then we don't see growth in how she's reacting to compliment and reacting to praise, just like old Taylor would have um, show us in this flux state that she's mid change. Um, you know, we've seen we've seen that temptation. We've seen that temptation to throw her in that toolbox, but we've seen her not to act on it. We've seen her with her mother. Um it, 
it's 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 too early to tell i think what the long-term effects that the decision taylor has made are going to be on her um but if i had to look in general i'd say refusing that thank you thinking thinking it's dumb it's dumb to give up to give a child back to her parents even though that's the thing she's been trying to do this whole time um is is dumb is not good is not good Mm. if if you do something right but you can't feel good about it then what motivation do you have to do the right thing the next time it's not it's not like reinforcing good behavior it's not like pointing you toward a path that is the good do good things not only will they benefit the world but they'll make you feel good too and that's not what we have here yeah i mean i think this is one of the prime examples of her really struggling with what it means to do good because like in in that cold utilitarian sense she probably could do the most good for the most people if she you know took dinah captive and used her as a tool to basically become more powerful and therefore protect more people. I mean, this is the argument that Taylor would make to herself anyway. Um, but like that, that isn't the kind of good that she wants to be. Maybe like that's the the, the part of her that wanted to be a hero wouldn't do that. And, And so it's, it's, it's almost, yeah, it's just the conflict between these two different almost interpretations of what it is to be good, I think. Yeah. And that's interesting because we do get a lot of direct kind of challenges to the utilitarian uh rationality in this arc we see it a little bit later with with noelle and her kind of option her the choice that she gives uh the team um i think that i think that's very intentional here that we're kind of challenging her viewpoint on some of this stuff mm-hmm. oh yeah and she's about to get challenged real hard oh yeah um yeah so so she gets back in the car and she finds two pieces of paper left by dinah but she can't read them because she can't see so she stows them away for now yeah and this um this this killed me a little bit uh here's here's another here's another option for me to clarify my stance on withholding information and doing reveals um in case you guys haven't gotten sick of me doing that yet uh i like it here this is a good setup for what might possibly be a long mystery i don't think we get to see what's on these papers yet i don't think we will for maybe a while um I like this because, first of all, because we don't know because Taylor doesn't know. And the reason Taylor doesn't know is that she's in a really emotional state right now and can't bring herself to look at the paper. So it's a good way of setting up. It's a good way of of rationally creating mystery and then withholding the reveal of it later. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Well, she'd have to ask somebody to read them to her. But yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, that's true. Yeah. I think she specifically says, I'll I'll ask someone to read these for me later. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But but, but you're right that she probably like on some level dreads doing so. Yeah. uh, and I, I'd, I'd love to think this is the last moment we're going to see Diana Alcott, um, but I, I kind of doubt it. <laughs> I'd love that she just goes off and lives her happy life and gets away from this terribleness, but it's not warm. Yeah, I do that a lot while I'm reading. I imagine the best possible outcome, and it, it never serves as a good predictive tool in Worm. Yeah. So uh, we cut to downtown. Uh, where Skitter meets up with the Undersiders plus Ballistic and Parian. Tattletail mentions that they found Atlas, but he's some distance away, so they won't be able to use him. Um, and Parian makes a giant stuffed dachshund uh, for them to ride. Matt. Matt. A stuffed dachshund? Um, <laughs> we need we need artists to make a drawing of supervillains riding a stuffed wiener dog, like, yesterday. Why, has yes. this, why does this not exist? This My is... favorite part. 
was that imp or, or, or regent was like, why not a snake instead? Instead of just saying like, why not just a cylinder of cloth? Like, why does it have to be an animal? <laughs> <laughs> of course, it has to be an animal. Yeah, of course. Parian wouldn't make something that wasn't an animal. No. Um, yeah. So there, yeah, like I said, there's there's some great banter among the undersiders about how unintimidating this is, uh, and the result is that Imp gets stuck writing the dachshund because Regent sells her out for making fun of Bentley, um, and Rachel lets Taylor ride Bentley because they are BFFs. Yeah, I, I everything about this is really excellent, and it's a really welcome tonal change from the heart crushing slash heartwarming stuff that we got earlier in the chapter. Um, Regent and Imp have have really shifted into this role of comic relief and 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 beats, uh, you know, playing off each other in, in really good ways. Um, and I I really like it. Um, and I, I think it, a story like this needs some of that sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I do realize that the irony of calling uh, a comic relief character the one who's an emotional serial murderer who robs people of their agency. I understand the irony of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's my favorite thing about it, if anything. Yeah. Uh, as they all ride, uh, a much more forthcoming ballistic fills them in on Noel. So he says she's strong, she's uninhibited, and she's smart. Um, but I do like how he dances around mentioning that she was only their team leader back when they played video games. Yeah, this is more messing with dramatic irony. Um, we get to lord the fact that we know these things over our characters, and it it's a little it's it's fun. Like it's, dramatic irony is a lot of fun sometimes. Yeah, right. I mean, like I don't know if it's supposed to be funny that like I, like I'm just imagining ballistic said he's like I probably shouldn't tell them that like she's never actually had a cape fight in her life. She's <laughs> just a video game player, but. Um, cause that'll probably make them underestimate her. And he knows that you shouldn't do that. Uh, yeah. So he describes her as an instinctive tactician in contrast to a planner, uh, in the sense that she's good at getting the gist of a situation very rapidly. Hey, that, that sounds like someone else we know. Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, so yeah, we, we, we got a lot of info here, which is kind of satisfying window into ballistics take on everything, uh, which is, which is appreciated after migration. It's nice to have another, another lens. Um, and, and he talks quite a bit here, actually, almost like he's getting all this stuff off of his chest. He yeah. talks about how trickster became a worse and worse leader, making worse and worse calls, uh, and eventually just lying to the whole team, not just to Noel. Yeah, um, that kind of sounds like someone else we know <laughs> <laughs> or a potential path for someone else we know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, I think we, I think our, our trickster to skater comparisons are, are always, are always fun. I'm just going to compare so, every character to Taylor from now on. That's that's probably fair. <laughs> uh, speaking of Trickster, he's he's not off the table as an element here. We, we have no idea what he's up to. We haven't seen him since the end of, of Migration. I can guess. Yeah, why don't you? Okay. He's going to um, be on Team Noel because he can't stop being obsessed with her and is going to be by her side. Um, I think I think there'll be some tragic thing at the end where he finally realizes and and has to kill her or has to sacrifice himself or something, blah, blah, blah. But I just feel like at this point, he's not ready to give up on her yet and therefore will be with her until he can't anymore. Interesting theory, Scott. Um, so we saw that we, we, you know, we saw from the migration interlude what Noel's power does, uh, but ballistic lays out. Uh, the details more clearly for us. So the clones, like we saw, are are evil, 
and they're they're uniformly evil, but they're not all as berserk and uncontrolled as the Perdition clone we witnessed was. Um, they may, in fact, be cold and calculated evil too. Uh, and and all of this is why Ballistic will be sitting out. Um, his power would be extremely devastating if used wantonly. Yeah, and this is part of the fight that I don't think we had really considered yet, or at least none of the characters had considered, or, or, or me personally, but the more firepower we put up against Noel, the bigger risk there is that the firepower is just going to be turned back around on you. So it's like like the response to uh, Endbringers is just bring as many people as possible, hit them as hard as you can, and hope that it works. That might not work here. This is a whole different type of battle. Yeah, totally. And and I know that we're probably going to mention this like a thousand more times before the Noel section of the story is complete. But evil clones is just this wonderful way of forcing characters to confront the worst parts of themselves. Um, I really don't think this is coincidental that this is happening right after Taylor's big murder choice. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, Clone Skitter reveals to us and more importantly, Taylor about herself, because that just has to happen. Like, it's just too perfect. It has to happen. Yeah, I like where your head's at, Scott. Uh, Ballistic also emphasizes that Noelle is very durable and regenerates pretty quickly. Her Noelle part, uh, kind of, you know, the top part, um, isn't really a vulnerability, although you might think it would be. Um, and he also expects her to be bigger than when we last saw her um, at the end of migration. Skitter mentions that the aim is to capture, not kill. And Ballistic is surprised and a little bit incredulous. He says he doesn't think Noelle is really the same person anymore. And then he leaves in a huff when Tattletail points out how cold this is. Um, so then the group moves on to meet with the heroes. Yeah, I, I do really like this moment because it does, again, we're, we're reinforcing Noelle as, as different from everything they fought before. Um, she's a, She is an S-class threat, just like the Endbringers, just like Slaughterhouse-Nine, but she is fundamentally different from them, too. Um, we kill Endbringers because they're these giant Godzilla monsters. Uh, we kill the Slaughterhouse-Nine because they represent like the absolute worst that humanity can be taking, you know, that mundane evil and turning it up to 11. Uh, Noelle is powerful, uh, but, but she's also kind of uniquely human as compared to all these other big threats we've seen before. So there's this real conflict in is, is killing this person. Okay. And, and I like that that conflict is only from the perspective of people that don't haven't seen her, don't know her, don't know what she's become. And, you know, I, I wonder how long before the rest of the team grows to agree with Ballistic's assessment of this about and what what's that's going to do to Tora Boy Trickster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, her story is, regardless of, of what she is now, her story is obviously much more tragic than, for example, anyone on the Nine, because anyone on the Nine chose to become part of the Nine. Right. Um, and even if they have, you know, something redeemable in them somewhere, they, they did choose that. Noelle didn't, you know, really know what she was choosing when she when she swallowed that vial. So. Right, right. Um, yeah, so we come upon the heroes and wards near some wreckage, and Skitter takes point in the conversation. Uh, and from Miss Militia, just before the chapter ends, we learn that Vista is missing. I think I laughed out loud in this moment, because it's, of course, like, it's so brilliant. We uh -huh. know that Vista is one of the most powerful capes in Brockton Bay, based on the numbering system. Um, so, of course it makes sense for Noelle to go after her first. It's like this like classic, like gamer opening move. <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's so great. It's so great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, right. Like this, the, the stakes are immediately set the, the level of threat. Oh yeah. So we, we then we take a little break 
Um, little cliffhanger there. We move on into 18.x uh, interlude from the most powerful man in the world. Who's that? Uh, it's it's a man. It's a man named Kevin Norton. Um, and I, I struggled with the right way to introduce this chapter because um, this is a very interesting, very unique chapter. So in this chapter, we've got a character who we've never met, um, one of our rare non-cape POVs, and he's living in the UK. Um, we're introduced to Kevin Norton as as a somewhat lovable, certainly pitiable homeless man who fancies himself the most powerful man in the world. Um, and he also has a dog who he talks to, uh, so we like him twice as much. Yeah, and in our continuing trend of showing just how quickly Wildbo establishes and gets us to care about new characters, here's Kevin, um, who we almost immediately love uh, by his like slightly crazy homeless charm. And yeah, the dog is absolutely a deliberate mechanism because not only does it give Kevin something to talk to without seeming crazy, but everybody loves dogs. I think yeah. I think Kevin and Rachel are just best friends. I agree. So, like, as he's walking, he, he stumbles into a woman and he handles it, like, really affably and, and kind of plays it off uh, for his own part. And we see kind of um, we see this through his explanations. Ooh, sorry, we see his thoughts uh, through his explanations to the dog uh, more than we see them kind of in his head the usual way. Uh, and he mentions to the dog that he's really afraid that he's shirked some important responsibility and he's going to deal with that now. Yeah, yeah, that that's something I actually didn't catch on the first read through. But we are not in Kevin's head here. I mean, none of the interludes are in first person, but we're normally like in that limited third person where we can see inside the mind of the character we're following around. Um, we see their internal monologue kind of. Uh, we don't here at all. Um, everything with Kevin is dialogue. Everything we see is dialogue between the characters. We can't read what's going on in his head. Um, and I think this serves an important function. I think it. It, we're we're further away from him a little bit than we normally would be. Um, we're a little bit more disconnected from the point of view character than we normally have. And I think this allows us to not only hold reveals in, in a structural way, but uh, to distance ourselves from this chapter that's very unusual and very different from anything that we've seen in Worm so far. Yeah, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it kind of makes me a little bit like, like the first time it made me a little bit worried about like whether he was who he appeared to be. Um, which he sort of isn't, but yeah. not in the direction that I thought. <laughs> yeah. So it, it starts raining on him as he walks, um, and a fashionable, pretty young woman, Lisette, offers him a 10-pound note um, and a bit of honest sympathy. And then they converse and shake hands, and he admits that he hadn't had any human contact that he could recall for possibly years prior to this. Yeah, and I'm willing to bet that every single one of us has walked past a homeless man before, um, has has lied to them that we didn't have any change, or has just refused to make eye contact so we didn't have to deal with it. Every single one of us has done that. So Lisette's choice here is almost like amazing level, because not only does she not ignore Kevin like she could have, she approaches him. She hands the money out to him. He's not panhandling. He's not asking for money at this point. He stopped doing that by now. But she sees him, sees him step out of the way into the rain to avoid her having to, to confront him directly and then reaches out to him. And it's so like kind and it's like so almost like overpoweringly kind. Yeah, very, very humane. So, yeah, he, he then they've kind of established a tiny bit of rapport here. So he invites her to come lend him moral support on this errand that he's doing that he that he seems to consider really important. And uh, she keeps an eye on him as they walk. Um, and because this is superhero fiction and because this is worm specifically, we know that appearances are going to be deceiving in some way. 
Um, but I definitely predicted, like I indicated earlier, that this was going to go a different way, um, possibly because I was primed on the Slaughterhouse-Nine as murder hobos. I kind of thought he was going to try to murder Lisette or something along those lines. Um, but I also really didn't want that to happen because I really liked Kevin Norton by this point. Like I, I felt like it would have been like a really cruel twist mm-hmm. for that to be the case. Uh, wh- where was your head at this point, Scott? Yeah, I definitely did predict things going a different way, but I, I was almost uh, the opposite. I thought uh, I liked Kevin so much and I thought Lisette's actions were so insanely kind. I immediately was like, I don't trust this girl. <laughs> she bumped into him on purpose that she's like with cauldron or something and and kevin norton was like a secret cape that she's about to kidnap or kill um that's where my head was at yeah this is all really interesting we're so we're so paranoid at this point i know it's kind of crazy so he tells her how he came to this state uh, as a young man he was in a relationship with a woman and then belatedly realized that he was gay and then suffered from domestic abuse at the hands of that woman yeah this is like talk about getting you to to care and and generally like this kevin norton character this is tough and i I don't really want to get into a whole conversation about domestic domestic abuse with men short of saying yes it does happen and yes it is awful but uh this this seemingly confirms again and again how much of a good guy kevin norton is how much of his life just kind of got fucked over by circumstance yeah right so they finally reach uh, a bridge of old stone and worn gargoyles, and he washes his face in the streaming waters. And when he looks up, he sees the golden man. I think I literally said, oh, shit, out loud in this moment as, as things kind of start clicking together. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could go back to the first time I read this. Uh, so Kevin greets him, but the golden man doesn't respond. And Lisette whispers the name that we know, Scion. Uh, but Kevin tells her that this was never his name. Um, Lisette then asks what we're thinking. Does Kevin Norton control Scion? No. Uh, but after Scion first appeared, he wandered into daze until he bumped into Kevin. And Kevin, finding him, uh, kind of just railed at him for looking so sad, for being so sad, when there was a world full of suffering out there. Uh, and in, in anger, he tells Scion to help people. And then Scion starts doing just that. He's a broken man, Kevin says, and he's looking for answers. Yeah. So, wow. Um, We still have no idea who or what Scion is. Uh, We have no idea if he is, was uh, a human or not. Um, If he's the source of or a result of these powers, we don't know any of this stuff. But we still are learning a lot of really important information here. Um, Because like in Worm, every cape is suffering from some sort of trauma, whether it be a small one, a big one. Uh, in Worm, the powers themselves are literal manifestations of that trauma, but Scion never seemed to fit that, um, just based on how he suddenly appeared, or, or so we believed, at least. Like, we th- like he was thought of this beacon of goodness who never slept, constantly was saving the world, constantly flying around doing good, and now we learn the truth of this. Scion is not this scion of goodness um kevin says he's sad broken wandering looking for answers so much like similar to a lot of the capes we've seen before and it's this this really like shocking moment yeah he's he's this he's this hero but he just radiates sadness apparently yeah um and as they're talking uh scion kind of disengages and is just staring at, at the leaves of a tree nearby and they talk to each other about how he seems like a child or, or autistic, overly connected, perhaps overly perceptive. 
Yeah, and again, to humanize him a little bit, it's hard not to look at this and compare it to the mental effect of Labyrinth's power, right? Um, that if we think we see in Labyrinth this very powerful mental power can have this complete destructive effect on her how her brain works um how could that affect what could that affect have on the mind of the most powerful being in the world Mm -hmm. yeah so kevin goes on to explain that after that first meeting scion kept returning to him and kevin would make suggestions on how he might uh, amend his behavior you know do a better job at saving people basically and at one point um while kevin is just kind of rambling at him basically uh he mentions something from his childhood and scion actually seems to pay attention to this and then soon after scion speaks for the first and only time uh to give his name except kevin didn't say scion he said zion (laughs) yeah so (laughs) let's this is there's so much here i mean i mean there's so much we could talk about and and i almost don't want to get really dive deep into zion and my interpretation of this is just Zion is very spiritual uh, for Jewish people. It's uh, interpreted as literally the Holy Land, Jerusalem. Um, also, interpretations see it as afterlife. Um, so this is very obviously very religious and very uh, deity and, and focused. So my guess here is uh, Zion got interested when uh, he started talking about gods and and. Uh, almighty beings and that's what he identified with and therefore that's when someone asked him who he was or what his name was he was just basically saying i'm a god um and that's the only way he knew how to do it so he did it and that's that's my guess but like there's so much it could be here i mean there's so much this could be saying it's crazy Mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting I, i like that i like that um so at this point uh kevin norton finally works up the courage to say what he's here to say that he's terrified that all those years ago he said stop the inbringers and that Sion took him exactly literally and has been refraining from killing them for years at the cost of millions of lives. Um, this actually makes me like choke up. Uh, I, I, this is, I don't really know why exactly this, this moment from Kevin Norton um, really, really hit me. This mm-hmm. just, this, this, um, guilt that, that he this like like fear and guilt um and, and he goes on to clarify that scion needs to kill them to, to destroy them not just to fight them yeah and i think i i completely understand why it hit you that way and it really did me too because there's this real sense of this overwhelming burden here um basically scion gifts him with the responsibility that comes with his power but not the actual power so kevin is a superhero without the superhero here superpowers he has all the responsibility all the weight and burden of this stuff but none of the actual agency um he he can order him the best he can but his interpretations are so literal that he never knows if if scion's doing the right thing or the wrong thing based off his orders and it's this like how could a human being handle this how could you live knowing that if you just said one word different uh millions of people would have been saved and you know kevin god he did the best he could and he's here you know trying to make amends for it um and and yeah and that this moment where he says you need to kill the endbringers you need to destroy them none of this none of this fighting them anymore and i wonder what the consequences of that are are we going to finally see scion kill an endbringer what happens when you kill an endbringer like do we i mean is that 
like is that supposed to happen like any of this stuff um and and again i think this is a good segue back to the arc as a whole the arc proper because will scion consider noelle who has been described several times throughout these first couple chapters as a proto endbringer um is she close enough to that level that he will come to destroy her completely uh interesting stuff Mm, yeah um yeah so the the second order of business uh is that kevin is is dying um and he and he wants to designate lisette as his successor um so that scion should listen to her when he's gone this really makes you wonder doesn't it because lisette was just this random woman that happened to reach out to him if kevin hadn't have found her would he have just ordered scion and then hoped that no one else ever got the ability to to take over like what what would have happened um because there's this this the most important reveal i think here is that the most powerful being in the world is not just inherently good that by either by chance or design or something he came upon kevin norton who is this genuinely good person and told him to do good things um which makes you wonder what if someone tells him to do a bad thing mm-hmm. and uh, that's a that's a hold for my speculation this week yeah yeah as you were talking earlier i was i was thinking like in terms of kevin norton being this this really good person like i wonder if if this burden that that scion essentially placed on him should be counted among the tragedies that have befallen him in life like like is this one of the things that that kept him homeless if yeah, you know what i mean i think so i yeah. do so then scion leaves uh, and kevin walks away leaving lisette with her new burden yeah and, i and love how leaves, it ends I yeah love it. good deal isn't it 10 pounds to become the most powerful person in the world <sighs> i love that <laughs> i love it yeah yeah that, there's such a great such a great chapter and so unusual too um yeah i just yeah. love how it fits in all right so we we snap back to our main storyline 18.3 miss militia is deeply skeptical of the undersiders uh, for their part the undersiders are trying to be genuinely transparent about everything um up to uh, and not including uh, admitting that they killed coil and and calvert um they confess that that the undersiders and travelers all did work for coil though and they tell the heroes that the nine were after noel the secret traveler uh, though not before miss militia lets us know that it was believed that skitter was the final candidate you kind of figured this would sting taylor a little bit but she kind of makes no direct reaction to it she just moves on um it's interesting that she does this doesn't affect her at all yeah right so tattletail and skitter do their darndest to convince the heroes but nothing really budges them until Gru chimes in that this is an s-class threat worthy of the strongest heroes so this at least uh moves the needle enough that miss militia is willing to hear them out if the undersiders will let one of their number be held hostage uh, and she wants Rachel um, for you know pragmatic reasons, uh, but um, all the undersiders agree that's a bad uh, a bad idea. And and then Skitter volunteers herself, um, to which Gru says no. Uh, and Skitter literally doesn't even acknowledge that he said this, even in her <laughs> thoughts. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, my guess is by the time the Noel portion of the story is complete, uh, Brailler, which is what I'm calling Brian Taylor, uh, is no more. It's done. It's gone. So, yeah, so she takes off her utility pack, she sends her bugs away, and then she gets in the van with Clockblocker, Weld, Miss Militia, Flechette, and Kid Wynn. And thus begins my favorite scene from this arc, and possibly the entire book so far. 
because now Skitter, powerless, and the most Taylor-like she's been in a while, is stuck in a van with superheroes. Yes, 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 yes. I love this so much. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so like you said, she's blind and with very few bugs here, um, so she's at a pretty stark disadvantage. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I love everything about this, but I'm just going to pull out um, this 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 bit where uh, Miss Militia is ransacking her utility pack and Skitter is getting increasingly irritated um, and Clock Blocker is kind of chiming in. You've got this stuff that's that's so high quality, but then the other stuff's so mundane. Odd for someone half the nation's paying attention to. I wouldn't know, I said, not really watching TV these days. Yeah, I love this realization that she's famous, like world, like countrywide. Everyone knows who Skitter is now. And I love that everything in here is clock blocker and presumably the rest of the wards. But he's the only one vocalizing it, like just trying to wrestle with who she this person is, this terrible, awful uh, supervillain that's like evaded them at every pass and constantly embarrassed them trying to understand who this person is and it's just so great yeah i mean how many times has she fought them now i don't even remember um a lot but yeah so the, the wards uh specifically confront her about her role in kidnapping shadow stalker and skater fires back that shadow stalker was certainly a homicidal psycho and they certainly knew it touche yeah and and i love dennis because he refuses to stop badgering Skitter even when Miss Militia threatens his, you know, basically just threatens him if he won't. Um, and, and overall it's, it's, it's just fantastic. Um, cause he, he, he refuses. And then, and then Skitter's like, yeah, that, that, that attitude of, of trying to shut somebody down when they're just trying to get information. That's what I'm talking about. That, <laughs> that bureaucracy, it's, it's hindering more than it's helping. And, and I can respect that you're pushing against it. And clock blocker says, don't compare me to you. Okay, I said, smiling a little behind my mask. I won't. <laughs> um, and I wonder if this, like, specifically this moment is the kind of thing that Wild Bill was thinking of when he asked how Taylor would, would do in the wards uh, this, this last week. Yeah, or previous week. I mean, kudos, Wild Bill. This was a very sly way of setting me up uh, <laughs> for this coming interaction and seeing how I would, how I would react to it. Um, I didn't say it when I answered this question. I should have. I, I, I thought about it later, but... Out of everyone on the team, I think Clockblocker and Skitter would actually probably get along the best. And I think this entire interaction almost confirms this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so and, and Clockblocker comes across really well here. Like he, he really he wants answers. I think it drives him crazy that Skitter seems to be willing and eager to defend her actions. It just doesn't jive with his expectation of who this person is. So he brings up everything like like all the stuff we've talked about it's like having a a perceptive reader getting a one-on-one session asking skitter to justify all the stuff she's done and dennis is actually really fair to her um he lets it he he lets it go when she provides a reasonable explanation for things uh, and she can't provide one for going after triumph's family for dinah um and, and he also doesn't let her off the hook for what happened shadow stalker um and there's just this whole bit here um that seems to be a recurring theme, he commented. You do stuff, you have reasons, like your apparent feeling that, oh, it's okay because she was a violent personality, but you don't pay attention to the ending, to everything that comes after. A whole lot of people have been screwed, screwed up and hurt in your wake, Skitter. <laughs> Man, I can't help but pat myself on the back a little bit when characters in the story almost exactly echo the arguments that you and I have been making since almost the beginning. Um, and it's he's like absolutely right here he's absolutely right and 
I really like him so well. And, and you're right. He is really fair to Taylor. Um, like we are accused of not being fair to Taylor, but I think we like him give her credit where it's due. Uh, we try to, uh, at least, but, but why, but people, uh, yeah. sometimes don't agree. Did I say on the podcast <laughs> why, but, or was that just, something? no, that, that was just, uh, the two of us. Why don't you, oh. why don't you open up that can of worms? Okay. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So why, but is my new term for you being unfair to Taylor. It's just literally, <laughs> um, it just, it just spelled why, but, and I thought that was hilarious. Um, but it's my new term for any time. Um, when I think a, a story is specifically telegraphing something for you to read it a certain way. But uh, people have interpretations that seem opposed to that uh, to that way of reading something. Um, the latest one to me was in Game of Thrones, when you're clearly supposed to see Danny as uh, burning people alive and using her dragon in this moment as a bad thing. And people were like defending the actions and not saying that it's reflective of her her parents. Um, they were why budding. So that's my new term. I like it. And I'm sorry to all the people I just offended. <laughs> It's okay. It's, it's what we do here. Um, yeah. So, so I, I was thinking about the clock blocker thing and how, like, the difference between the undersiders and the wards is that, like, Taylor wanted to be a hero. None of the other undersiders wanted to be a hero. Yeah. Um. So, so even if even if the wards like kind of fall down and and aren't as much of heroes as they should be, what they all have in common is that they all want to be heroes and 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 they and Taylor has that in common with them. So what's what's cool about this is that like if if there were even one person like like Clockblocker on on the undersiders who actually wanted to be a hero, the dynamic would be so different because you'd have another person other than like the increasingly powerless angel sitting on Taylor's shoulder um giving her this type of feedback on her actions. Yeah. So that's that's why I love this scene. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a really great point. And I think we sometimes like discount um, the desire to do good by itself and how important that is on top of everything else, on top of the bad decisions that have been made, the bad things that have been done. Um, a person with the desire to do good that does bad versus a person that has no desire to do good and continues to do bad. Those are those are two very different people. And, and you're absolutely right that Taylor is. Uh, uh, the former on that Taylor, no matter what bad stuff she does, she does have that desire. She wants to help people. She wants to do good. Um, and, and yeah, she could be, she could be a superhero. Like she could, there's a, there's a place for it. Like in this moment, I was like, join the wards, do it, like, do it. Like, look how one conversation with this guy, one five minute conversation with someone, uh, rattled her. Uh, yeah. shook her like made her question herself like if she had that kind of influence regularly how different of a person would she be yeah totally all right so we move right on into 18.4 and uh, everyone arrives at the prt headquarters and skitter rejoins her team uh, we briefly meet the current deputy director although i'm not sure if we get their name we do. Uh, the situation is outlined and the villains are placed in various rooms to be interviewed i suppose yeah, I just wanted to to pull out before we move on a quick moment where mm -hmm. they're talking about where director Calvert is and uh <laughs> one of the one of the plainclothes guys spoke up. He's gone silent, sir. I didn't miss the fact that nearly a third of the local officers glanced my way. We were apparently the prime suspects, which wasn't wrong per se. 
Matt, what is per se about them being the primary suspects? <laughs> she shot him in the head. They are indeed the ones responsible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why? Why? Why is she playing with with these these words here? Like it's it's absurd. It's uh, like I mean, she's I want... removing she's removing blame on it from yeah, herself. Like, right. She's almost like pretending. I wonder. I mean, it, it is interesting. This follows this follows so closely on her being so put out of sorts by clock blocker that maybe she's especially desperate to defer blame. Yeah, I think that that could be a fair read for sure. So she ends up with Rachel Tuttletail in triumph. Um, and here she actually does finally apologize to triumph who seems upset at the fact that she went ahead and told everybody about his identity. <laughs> was, I mean, that's kind of an unreasonable expectation to have. Mm-hmm. Did the villain who learned my identity share it with her villain friends? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did she? She didn't go out of her way to lie about what happened when she attacked my house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as much as an apology here doesn't really do anything, I still like that she did it. Um, I yeah. think it's she's she's extending an olive branch kind of, and not just because she needs to work with him. It's not just for that. It's because she genuinely feels bad for what she she did. And and I think again we can look back to the the clock blocker conversation as uh jarring some things loose in her a little bit yeah it's got to be really confusing for for the heroes though because i'm sure they have this this image of her and then they meet her and she's like i'm really sorry about what happened and they're <laughs> like what what <laughs> you, you almost killed me the only thing more confusing than uh, being taylor's teammate is is being taylor's opponent yeah yeah uh, we get a tiny moment here where um, we get the names of the existing S-class threats. So we have Leviathan, Seamurg, Behemoth, Slaughterhouse-Nine as a group, Nilmog, and the Sleeper. Who, who's the Sleeper, Matt? Is this an EverQuest reference? EverQuest? I'm, I'm, Did anyone I play EverQuest? Yeah, it must be a giant purple translucent dragon. It probably is. And if you wake it, it rampages across the Icelands, killing everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Triumph... Um, is mainly upset about the, the harm that she did to his dad's career. Um, and, and the conversation kind of goes back and forth and, and finally triumph asks, then what do you want? Um, and I think it's tattletale. Talking yeah, here, it is. Actually. Yeah. yeah tattletale says security. We have all the basics, shelter, food, warmth, companionship, money, anything we do from here on out is going to involve better securing ourselves where we're at. We want to stop uh, visiting villains from getting a foot, foot leg, uh, sorry, foot footing anywhere in the city, unless they're joining us. Keep the peace. So we keep you guys off our back. I wouldn't mind a system like the Yakuza of Japan's yesteryear, where we support and involve ourselves in local business legally to the point. Nobody will be able to shake us. That's terrifying. Triumph said, <laughs> uh, so we've gone from, Earlier in the conversation, uh, when she was talk- talking to Clockblocker, saying, saying, I don't know what the next steps will be, to uh, we want to be the Yakuza. <laughs> yeah. I think whenever you start comparing yourself to the Yakuza, uh, you know you're on the right side of things, right? Like you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're the good guys. Yeah. Yay. Everybody, everybody, everybody's ambition is to, is to be like a mafia kingpin. <laughs> everybody. Um, so, yeah, Weld, Weld and Clockblocker joined them. Um, and I really want a picture of this moment right here. I love this. Uh, excuse me, Matt. Um, I have um, trademarked the phrase, I love this. Uh, um, you owe me at least $5. Yeah, I will cease and desist. Thank you. So Miss Militia cuts in uh, with some reports from the PRT thinkers. And I, I like that we 
kind of get what's being conveyed without unnecessary explanation. Eleventh <laughs> uh, Hour gets an eight. Appraiser says we're purple, and Hunch says it's bad. Um, <laughs> so it's like you, you don't you don't need to know you don't need any explanation of who those people are or what that means. You're just like, huh? Yeah, I get it. Yep. That's yeah, fun. it's a lot of flavor too. <laughs> hunch has a hunch, yeah. and the hunch is it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so completely impartial. Chief Director Costa Brown calls it an A-level threat against procedure, according to Tattletale, uh, which she isn't happy about. Yeah, I wonder what's up with Chief Director Costa Zandria and why she's she'd be motivated to, to call it an A-level instead of an S. Probably, I mean, it's probably nothing suspicious about that at all. Uh, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so on the surface, Miss Militia is right that Noel's powers aren't uh, inherently exponentially duplicative, but Tattletail emphasizes that, uh, quote, her, thro- her threat level zooms up to S as soon as she gets her hands on anyone who can enable something like that, like, say, any tinker. Yeah, I don't know how you'd <laughs> ever argue that someone that can eat Eidolon and produce Infinity Eidolons is not an S-class threat, um, but this whole exchange was worth it to me for Miss Militia's response, <laughs> which is, we have one tinker, kid win. Boom. He's not in this class because we only have one tinker, and that tinker is Kid Win. <laughs> Sucks to be Kid Win. Yeah. Yeah. That that would be funny. I'm just kidding, guys. I like Kid Win a lot. He's great. Yeah. I'm just always gonna make fun of him. Yeah, you can't help it. It's his name. So um it turns out that one of the only differences anyway between an A and an S class response is that the triumvirate won't necessarily have to respond to the A class. Oh, you mean those guys that are working for Cauldron? I'm sure it's not related. Uh, and also, uh, there's an invitation for volunteers to come help, but it's not a requirement. Matt, if I've learned anything from office potlucks, when it's just voluntary, nobody ever brings anything. Mm-hmm. Or if they do bring something, it's plates and napkins. So that's not very useful. Yeah, we're going to have the napkin capes. <laughs> so... Miss Militia leaves the three male wards and three female, uh, female villains uh, to discuss strategy. Um, and th- this term, quote, uh, interactions comes up a few times, and I really like it. I like having a label for it, uh, for this fact that you can get strong effects by combining different people's powers tactically, like like we've seen before, where, where like Regent and Imp sort of complement each other, um, or, or, or like they mentioned here, putting Clock Blocker on one of Rachel's dogs and and kind of amplifying his power by letting him run around on them. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think this is the first time that we've labeled that something. And this is really a cool moment in general, because we see our villains like planning and strategizing, and the wards are just kind of sitting there uh, watching them <laughs> and not really doing anything. And I think this shows like a difference between the leadership styles and structures in a, a, a like a police type organization, like the wards who are just very used to taking orders um, and the undersiders who have to do everything on their own and come up with their own plans. Um, but I'm also sure that, that the wards are kind of freaked out in this moment when Tattletail and Taylor go on this random tangent about what would happen if they were able to body control an Endbringer via Regent. Like, <laughs> they just go down this rabbit hole, like mid conversation and they're just like, yeah, okay. So back to the planning. <laughs> and it's just yeah. like, what the fuck? Yeah. Powers are terrifying. So uh, Idolin suddenly arrives, interrupting this delightful exchange, and he engages in repartee with Tattletail. 
Um, Paddletail lets on that she knows about his weakness, uh, namely his weakening powers, which we kind of know about in passing from the interlude where he asks for the booster shot. Um, and then at this point, Eidolon rather violently puts up a force field so he can talk to, ta- uh, to Tattletail privately. Um, and we can, of course, sort of hear this through Taylor's bugs. So Tattletail goes on to say that, uh, I mean, I'm kind of reading between the lines, I guess, but that, that, that Alexandria called it an A-class threat so she wouldn't have to show up. And Eidolon did show up because he wants to test himself. He wants a challenge. Yeah, this is a really great moment because Eidolon loses his shit and like almost causes um, the truce between the sides to break and like everyone just start attacking each other. And I think this is a really good indication again of the change in Rachel, because the fact that Rachel gets thrown into a wall by this force field and doesn't immediately sick her dogs on people and start attacking is huge for her. That's so big. Uh, It's such a big change. Um, and, and, and like you said, we do briefly only hear parts of that conversation, and, and it's enough to get the general gist of it. And again, clever way to tip your hand, showing we've got info, um, and you get to see part of it, but not all of it, and it makes sense within the world why, and it's really good. Yeah. I I, I think you're probably right that Eidolon's reaction with the force field was kind of from a place of anger, but, but I also have a, a parallel interpretation that... Maybe he's just like so used to being like above everyone that to him, that was just like an offhand, like, I want to talk to her privately now. So just going to make this force field and not really care about the consequences because I'm sure I can deal with them because I'm my Dolan. Um, yeah, I suppose that's possible. I think it fits more like because he's clearly like unnerved by the fact that she just called out his losing power thing so i think it makes a little more sense that he's a little brash here when he normally wouldn't be i think you're right i I just yeah uh yeah so so he leaves after this exchange um and then the overall briefing begins um and and for for a moment brian stands behind taylor and, and he rubs her back uh which she also basically ignores yeah um she brian here it's so funny like i keep relating it back to arc 17 but he seems to be like pulling a kraus here like he's he's almost realizes that he's losing her and he's like desperately trying to initiate physical contact to like confirm his place um in her life and it's just like nope sorry yeah it's kind of sad actually uh, yeah. So uh, the the meeting, though, that Miss Militia is giving is interrupted by Noelle herself Skyping in. And she tells them that she can smell that there are more heroes than Miss Militia is letting on. Yeah, that's a uh, n- normal. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then Noelle says that she killed Vista. She used her up. And Noelle shows them her progress. There are five Vistas twisted and mutated, as we've seen before. Um. And this uh, th- this exchange, why Vista? She was alone, and I could smell how strong she was. Read about her online, too. Internet was all I had for a long time. Now I've got them. They're pretty obedient, and it's nice to have company. I haven't had any physical contact with anyone for a while, and they liked giving me hugs. Except the sixth. Sixth, Miss Militia said. Not as obedient. She ran off, gibbering something about killing her family. Um, I think I basically just pulled this out because of how perfectly creepy and horrifying it is. Yeah. And again, like 
we've only I think we've only outside of arc 17, we've only talked to Noelle in her current form one time when she was helping them out uh, with the Slaughterhouse Nine. And, and God, she she's gone like straight up villainy here. And it, it's almost mm-hmm. it almost feels to me like the Noelle that we knew like ballista uh, ballista why do i keep saying that ballistic <laughs> said is gone is this is something else this is maybe her passenger taking over or something um and like she's turning into this monster and it's really it's really good i like it a lot yeah i mean she says specifically like i feel like i feel like i'm not going to be me for much longer and and she says like i, I feel like it's it's taking control of my subconscious and, yeah. and stuff like that so yeah and yeah. this is very evident just in the way she talks yeah it's also possible she's acting a little bit because we True. know she's she's or we, we at least strongly suspect she's lying about yeah vista. I, I don't know if, if you can remember when you first read this i never bought that vista was dead here um it just didn't seem probable to me that that would happen um i, I don't remember but but that that uh, that makes sense to me so yeah so noel offers them a deal uh if the heroes kill the undersiders or hand them over she'll trade any hostage she takes for an undersider and when the undersiders are all dead she'll kill all of her own clones and then let the heroes kill her hey hey matt isn't mm-hmm. this the utilitarian best option here i mean yeah. like shouldn't they just give up the couldn't give up the undersiders i mean yeah yeah yeah, Taylor, you got a chance to kill a yeah. proto unbringer in inbringer. Why don't you just give yourself up? Huh? Yeah, it's really fun to make choices like that until the one that you sacrifice is you. Yeah, that's right. All right, uh, so then we take another break in in the midst of all this build up to go over to uh, our uh, sorry chapter eighteen dot y all around nice guy Justin uh discussing how to torture theo with his good friends dorothy and uh jeff is how i'm going to choose to say that um i think it's correct and they all seem to have a lot of practical knowledge in the subject matter of torture actually oh boy it's the nazis um so before we we dive into this chapter um let's just say that it's it's definitely not my favorite in the book Uh, i i don't like it a lot i think we're going to move through it pretty quickly but um, I don't like Nazis <laughs> and especially in light of the, it's, it's really, we can't talk about this with at least touching on the events of last weekend. Um, and like, I am not interested in learning about the inner pain of a Nazi right now. Um, I'm not really jazzed about doing it, but you know, we are professionals and I think there's something to be said here there, that Wildbo is doing something here. So I'm going to try my best to uh, go through this and engage with the chapter in the way it's meant to be done. But also, uh, fuck Nazis. Seriously. Yeah, I don't think this chapter um, wants us to sympathize too much with Crusader at any point. So we don't really have to worry about that. But yeah, no, but I mean, there, there are distinct moments of attempts at humanization. And mm-hmm. and while I understand that. And I, I think it's OK. And I think humanizing characters is important. And, and what narrative and storytelling allows us to do is is humanize people and characters that we would never want to do in real life because that's dangerous and setting precedents and stuff like that. Um, it, it's still just hard to do in my mind right now. So, yeah. Um, anyway, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to go through the chapter and I'm going to try not to be uppity <laughs> as we go. <laughs> yeah. OK. Yeah, so so Theo Theo's there. Theo's listening to them talk about torturing him, and he doesn't enjoy the, this line of conversation. But he kind of seems resigned. He's not really fighting. Um, and you get the sense that this has been going on for some time. 
and uh, Night and Fog are even creepier in person than they are in costume because they follow this precise, this precise script every morning down to the word. Uh, Jeff just stares at the paper for 40 minutes without reading it, and Dorothy makes way too much food, and, and it's, it's, just, it's just bizarre and, and surreal. Yeah, I think it is interesting that the story allows Night and Fog to basically be monsters or robots or robo-monsters. Um, they, do not, they do not act remotely human, uh, which, which I think is directly contrasting with Crusader and Purity, who are still white supremacists, who are still terrible people, um, but seem much more human, um, especially Purity with she's still like going over her, her innocent shtick, but she's not really... A white supremacist she's not really like these other people but but she is anyway um <laughs> i think the one through line in this chapter the one thing that i do like and the one thing that gets you to an emotional place that isn't just disgust is theo again um and it's so like that's been his role in two chapters now and in his point of view arc with with jack slash that's what he was he was the emotional center for you the person you actually cared about in the scene um so it's got you feel so bad for this kid yeah totally um but yeah so so we're we're in justin's head and and like you like you said about humanizing moments he's he's at least unnerved by by night and fog which which does i suppose put us uh on his side in that particular sense yeah yeah so caden joins them at the breakfast table and they continue the discussion which we now understand was really about trying to force theo's trigger event uh, so, you know, we, we kind of know this, or we, we may not know all of this, but he's the son and grandson of Capes, and both of his parents are Capes, so it should be easy for him to trigger. Yeah, uh, and we've actually seen that um, reports of, of third generations triggering very early, like infant. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. fact that, that he hasn't is, is very unusual. Right, right. So Caden actually seems defensive of Theo, though, and, and she won't consider letting him be tortured. She says that she'll fight the Nine uh, with the other capes at the table if it comes down to it. Yeah. Again, Caden's a nice person here, but I think she actually does represent that kind of insidious closeted racism. Like, I don't think she'd ever call herself racism racist, but she'd also never probably hire someone that wasn't white or anything. So yeah. I think... I think it's so funny because we, we have these different types of white supremacists, these different type of racist, horrible people. And I almost feel like she's the worst one <laughs> because she's so insidious about it. Like, like Night and Fog are robotic, whatever. They're fucked up. Uh, Crusader is much more honest about his and hers. She kind of hides behind this air of I'm good and I'm just taking care of my family. And I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I definitely didn't want to go on a huge tangent about Nazis, but like I always go to the the Stanford Prison Experiment here, which uh, just very briefly is, is this experiment where they basically showed that if you if you put people in in dehumanizing positions and you give people absolute power over other people and you expect them to treat those people badly, they will. Um, and and really like the lesson there is like there's there's nothing. There's nothing um, natively monstrous about like the people who were the Nazis in World War II. Like every every single human being is a savannah chimp who's more than more than capable of doing the things the Nazis did. Like it, it's it's uh so so you don't need to humanize Nazis because Nazis are humans and and humans are are capable of being Nazis. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's it's we 
we we are rejecting a choice. You know, we're not saying that they're some kind of incomprehensible alien. We're saying that these characters have made choices that we're rejecting. Yeah. And and so the flip side of that is, uh, yeah, of course they're human, and of course they may even have things that we can sympathize about. Um. Yeah, I don't know. If that's but, my. That's my. But tangent. at the end of the day, still Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Please do not construe that as any kind of defense of Nazis, by the way. Are you Let's... a sympathizer, Matt? Is that what you're saying? I, I knew this would happen. <laughs> 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 All right. So um, Justin mentions going to the Gesselshaft. Gesselshaft? Not sure. Uh, which is apparently the organization that created Night and Fog. Uh, some kind of foreign, vaguely neo-Nazi sounding organization that had ties to Kaiser's group. Uh, Justin seems to think that whoever these people are, they view purity as an avatar of their cause, even if she doesn't want to be. Oh, good. As if we didn't have enough Nazi people running around. Um, I, I've, this is set up. These guys are going to come into play later. I am I am sure of it. And I hope they all die. Mm-hmm. So Theo asks Justin where he stands on the cause. Uh, and Justin helpfully explains to us that he's definitely a solid racist, uh, but that the Gesellschaft is a bit too abstract and big picture for his tastes, and he prefers to just hurt people. Oh, fuck this guy so much. <laughs> <laughs> so then Justin goes on, and he, he trains Theo in hand-to-hand combat, and then he, Theo, and Caden, carrying Aster, head out to the Harvard campus. And here they visit the Department of Parahuman Studies, looking for a renowned professor. Uh, and when Justin makes fun of the professor's name, Theo outs himself as a not-racist by saying, uh, what difference is it going to make? Does it make any difference to his ability to do his job? I knew I liked that Theo kid. Yep. Uh, so they, they only they only find the T the TA though Peter, um, who gradually comes to grasp what's going on over the course of the scene. Theo is asking about how to trigger, and Peter explains that every government is trying to crack that secret, and he lets us in on on a lot of theories and various things the governments have tried to do, like kidnapping and torture with or without the awareness of the target. Um, so we learn here apparently. Forced triggers actually work less well than similar situations without the the coercive element. Some scholars think that there's an element of there being one right trigger for each person, and some go so far as to say that it could be predestined in some sense. So obviously it's been noticed that there's some sense of an analog between the trigger and the power you get, which might suggest an intelligent source, um, or that the powers themselves are intelligent. Yeah, I don't know uh, what to really comment here except to say that this kind of confirms my understanding of of what I think the passengers are and what they're doing, at least so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Justin, at this point, wonders uh, if his power is actually fundamentally a, a mental one, since he triggered due to the mental stress of being caught pulling the plug on his disabled sister, who he resented. Uh, Scott, is this our least charming POV character to date? Uh, yep. <laughs> I feel so bad for you, Justin. Poor guy. No, <laughs> it's funny because Wildbo does build a little sympathy here for him by saying his parents like forced him to donate his organs to his sister. Um, but we're also in his point of view. Don't forget, and he is also a piece of shit. So <laughs> there's really no real confirmation for that. It could just be him uh, tilting things to make it seem like he was the victim in this case. Uh, Justin, yeah. you suck. You suck. I don't like you. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't feel any particular compassion for him in this moment either. Nope. And and we essentially see Caden kind of wondering 
a similar thing that, you know, if, if being trapped in a car without food or water led her to trigger in such a way that she could gain sustenance from light. Yeah, removing the emotional aspect of this, <laughs> I think this is a really interesting way of explaining her power and the manifestation of it. And mm-hmm. um, like the body searches for a way to survive. That's not the things it has. It's very evolutionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, eventually the capes reveal who they are to Peter and they prompt him to go on. He mentions some kind of meditation aimed at breaking down the barriers in the mind. Uh, and he adds that some capes may not be able to have a second trigger event because they already did. They had two in quick succession when they first triggered. That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Peter reasons that both Kaiser and Allfather's powers were likely due to mental trauma, implying that Theo may need a mental trigger. So at this point, Crusader looks out the window and sees PRT vans and then reasons that somebody made them. So Crusader uses his uh, his shades to stall them while Purity continues the questioning. Eventually, Crusader tells Peter that he'll kill him if he doesn't leave satisfied, uh, and Peter understandably freaks out. But then he starts talking about isolation. And then he says specifically, no, more basic. It's a common trend. People who have trigger events, they don't usually have a good support system. Their family, their friends, they tend to fail them or be the cause of the problem. I, I wrote this paper a while back about how masters tend to have loneliness as part of their trigger events and how maybe that was why masters tend to be villains because you need support and social pressure to be, to be more of a good guy. Uh, my professor, then the guy I work for now, uh, Dr. Waisaki, uh, he tore me to pieces. Too many other parahumans have it as part of their history. Isolation. It wasn't enough to suggest a correlation. He said you could call it a common theme for nearly all the trigger events out there. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know yeah. if that reminds you of anything. <laughs> no, not, no one. Um, yeah, I mean, there's obvious. Uh, Taylor being a master ties back to this exactly, but then we get confirmation that this is not unique to her at all. Um, so it can be both true and not true. And I like the science behind this. I like that it's, it seems like they're accurately showing that science is 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 trying to solve these problems and trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. I think we could go through every person who, who, whose trigger event we know and identify like, yeah, this person was socially isolated in addition to whatever extra trauma they had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So with that, the crusader kind of has a breakthrough. He tells purity to leave and then he holds Theo in place with, with a, with a shade while he, while he leaves and they abandon him there. And Theo, who had been so dispassionate at all the talk of torture and, and other things panics because he's desperate not to, not, not to be left alone. Uh, and it, cause like that really is one of the worst things for humans. Yeah. Um, but crusader is right in the details. If, if Peter's theories are correct, then Theo won't trigger while he has purity to rely on. Yeah, and of course, everything that we, separate from this, have learned about trigger events agrees with this as well. I I mean, Theo's probably going to trigger from this, and that is shitty because it reinforces that doing bad things leads to maybe him doing good later. Um, But I hope he does trigger, and I hope he, like, beats fucking shit out of Crusader. (laughs) I hate him so much. If anybody Y-butts me about Crusader, I'm going to be mad. (laughs) I, I honestly don't think anyone will. Okay, good. So we move into 18.5 and we are back with Taylor. And we're in the first moments after that call with Noel ends. And right right away, Assault jumps in and argues that the heroes should turn over the Undersiders like Noel wants. But Miss Militia, ever heroic, says no. 
The deputy director agrees, and Triumph calmly tells Assault that they need to that they actually need him to assure them that he won't backstab them. But he's not having any of it, and and Miss Militia is forced to play the battery would have wanted it this way card. Yeah, it really surprised me how much this hit me, um, because one of the things that I've talked about that I did have a problem with that I just don't think the battery and assault relationship was established enough for this emotional beat to land as well as it should. And the fact that it still lands makes me wonder, like, this moment would have like sung if we just spent a little more time establishing that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think we've at this point we've had far more beats of assault being just devastated about this, yeah, this yeah. loss than we ever had setup of the relationship in the first place. Exactly, and again because the relationship was kind of started in a semi creepy way, <laughs> like that with him kind of uh, beating her down with his attraction until she like finally relents. It just I, I don't know. I, Part of me yeah. wants to see how how much better it could be if we establish their relationship as as caring and like from the get go that it doesn't start on this kind of insidious note. You're asking for more pain, Scott. Yeah, I, I guess <laughs> I guess I am. Yeah. So so uh, uh, Miss Militia does say that she's willing to front a kill order on the undersiders if they if they bend the rules this time. Um, and then we get sort of Taylor's more explicit explanation of what that entails. A kill order. It was what they had in place for the Slaughterhouse Nine. No holes barred. Official heroes would be allowed to shoot us on sight. Any villain or vigilante that came after us would be allowed to go free with only the brief questioning for the paperwork after killing one of us. To top it off, anyone would be able to donate or post amounts for our heads. Amounts would be added to running totals. We'd be waiting jackpots for any bounty hunter or assassin looking for a big score. Yeah, so it's funny because we've heard of the kill orders before. We knew that the Slaughterhouse Nine had them on them. And it's I got in a, a, a like a 30 minute uh, chat conversation with my friend uh, debating whether or not um, a kill order would even be like actually legal <laughs> in, in, our, in our world. And like like even if it was legal, if you could just deputize random civilians and it would be OK. And it, like if a random civilian killed someone without knowing about the kill order, if that could not be murder because um, the kill order was in place and how that was all. And basically it was 30 minutes of arguing that ended basically, OK, we'll just wait and see if they bring any more information. And of course they did here. And, and we see here that um, that that this this is just how the world has kind of changed that now we have these kill orders and we let we let bounties be brought up and we authorize uh any rogue cape or any rogue person to to kill this person and just has to go through simple questioning and it shows that like how how much things have changed and and it 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 worries me though because like giving this kind of power the power to execute someone you know without due process can be abused um that's why we have it in our system in the first place and and i think Mm -hmm. we kind of we kind of get hints of that here too because like there's this underlying threat that um if if the the undersiders misbehave at all then they'll be subject to murder on the same level of the slaughterhouse nine so they they have to follow orders to the letter here or they deserve to be killed it's just kind of crazy Right. Yeah. I mean, Taylor, Taylor has extreme misgivings about this for that exact reason. It's like, okay, so, so if you just think that we've not followed the the, the rules exactly, you reserve the right to put a kill, a, a, an assassination order right, on our heads. Right. It's, it's a little, like, 
a little sketchy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but she does agree though, like on behalf of the undersiders, and 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 they all agree just because they're they're kind of at this point they're just like, all right, let's just get things going. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So this this agreement having been reached, Telltale lets everyone know that Noel was lying. Vista is alive. Noel's power doesn't work quite the way she's implying. This is actually bad news because it implies that she she still has Vista captive and can make more clones. <laughs> so fucked. So <laughs> fucked. So Miss Militia um, um, offers to take point, and nobody objects, even though Idolin is notably present. Uh, not really a leader, apparently. Miss Militia is, though, and she's a good one. She rattles off a string of very sensible orders, and she sends the Undersiders along with Merdin's wards to catch up with Flechette and Parian to keep them safe. Yeah, and as we go through this part, I think this is when we see the pace of the writing really start to noticeably ramp up. And I really do like this briefing scene. I like briefing scenes in general. Like, I like when everyone sits down and talks about the plan and then we get to see it executed. That's why I like heist movies so much, but I really liked it here too. There's, there's a lot of built up energy here that like we build and build and it's ready to be released once our characters get out there and actually start fighting. Um, and I think wild is really good at managing that pace and tone in these scenes to build that energy, to build that sense of impending action. Um, and, and this whole section has been this calm before the storm. And then you can see in this chapter specifically, we're almost ready to say, okay, here it is. We're, we're about to jump into it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. Um, so Miss Militia wants to keep Tattletail with her, but Tattles has her own plans. She wants to bribe Ballistic and Scrub to join them and then do something else. We're not sure what exactly. Still going with the, the Scrub name, huh? Still, <laughs> still sticking with that. He's got it. So Noel is expected to be leveraging Vista's power to move rapidly around the city. Uh, so at this point, she could be anywhere. <laughs> and, and the capes at this point file out. They have their orders. Um, Skitter is annoyed that she can't really perceive much about the Chicago wards that she'll be working with since she's working with so few bugs and she asks Rachel to kick open a window. And when she does, Skitter brings in the huge swarms that she's been gathering outside. Um, and, and here we have this, this great moment. The bugs filled the necessary pockets of my costume, then carpeted the exterior, including my mask. They connected to the ends of my hair and moved beneath it, giving it more volume and helping it become a little alive. The ends moving in the absence of wind where I had excess, they trailed several feet behind me like the hem of a royal gown. That's better, I said, augmenting my voice a touch. It was. I felt more centered, more secure, and confident with the bugs close. I'd just alarmed the people we'd be working with, but a small show of power would help ensure we got respect and cooperation. <laughs> so this is a three-beat that I've specifically avoided talking about until we got to the third beat of the moment. Um, because... When Taylor is locked up, she has to get rid of all her bugs and all of her equipment. And we get this small beat about how light she feels, that she's not she's a lot lighter because she doesn't have all these bugs that she has all over her weighing her down. And she comments how how weak and defenseless that makes her. And we hit this beat again during the, the conference between all the, the capes. Taylor notices that when she's making arguments, her voice without the addition of her bugs sounds weak, how she can't tell what's going on around her because she's blind, but also just because she's used to having her bugs on everything and it makes her feel less confident less sure of herself 
And then this is the final beat, the turn of this, where Taylor gets her bugs back. And we see immediately that she's more centered, more secure, more confident. Uh, I talked about this on Twitter, and the response I got was mostly uh, people saying, well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense because she's blind. But uh, but I, I really do think it's clearly very much more than just, I can't see, so I use my bugs to see. Um, Taylor's bugs, Taylor's power has become such a crutch to her that she can't survive without it. Um, the confidence that we've seen grow in her over this time, the the assurity, that's kind of fake because it's just related to her bugs. It's it's her crutch. It's artificial growth. It's the attachment to the power that we see. It, it, once again, Taylor is weak. Skitter is strong. And she thinks of herself as Skitter now. So whenever she feels that she's going back to that Taylor moment, she freaks out and loses that confidence that's part of her now. And it's it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's all great, and and just to explicitly point it out, I mean, the, we we don't get a lot of external descriptions of her, but but one of the most recent ones was just like, yeah, okay, she's she's using some bugs to help like cover her face because her mask was destroyed, and she's got them in her hair, and and then we kind of know that she like people can actually mistake swarm clones for her which suggests that she has a lot of bugs on her normally. And now, like, if you were to draw her, it seems like she would just be, like, a, a hulking, dripping, like, giant pillar of bugs yeah. almost. Like, I mean, she's like, using them to give her hair volume. It's like, yeah. I love that the, the detail of that beat. It's like, I am, there's, there's no reason to do, like, it's not a strategic move to do that. It's literally just to make herself look bigger, to seem... Yeah more powerful yeah. like even the augmenting of her voice like she she augments her voice a little bit at the end there just for no reason just just because it thinks she makes it makes her think she's stronger right and she like her costume has this small cape on it but now they they trail several feet behind her like the hem of a royal <laughs> gown i know it's so great yeah it's so crazy yeah i mean she looks actually i didn't even notice that until now royal gown and this is queen right Oh, yeah, there you go. Queen arc. Yep. I mean, I guess we could maybe we'll save that for the end, but there's a lot of of queen imagery going on here just in yeah, general. Yeah. yeah. So so now that she has a million bugs in the room, she gets a good sense of the appearance of the, the Chicago Awards. And so do we. Uh, the group leaves together, Amp and Regent making fun of their cape names. And Scott. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it turns out uh, Wanton is a breaker stranger who transforms into a localized telekinetic storm rain answer is a long range direct damage cape uh, grace is a grab bag cape centered around martial arts and tecton is a architecture slash geology thinker tinker in power armor <laughs> wonton <laughs> oh, are those noodles <laughs> That was that. such a great moment. I love those guys. And it's so funny because I read the names of the two capes and I immediately started making jokes in my head. And then, uh -huh. of course, Imp and Regent make almost the identical jokes <laughs> that I was making in my head afterwards. And I was like, what does that say about me? Uh, the, the, my sense of humor identifies with these two psychopaths. <laughs> yeah, you're in good company. So, yeah, the, the wards, um, they don't need the Undersiders to tell them about their powers because apparently everybody in America already knows the Undersiders' powers. Remember when uh, keeping a low profile was important to these kids? Yeah, yeah. Those were the days. That's, yeah. So as they mount up and head out, Tattletail mentions that Assault will probably screw them over if they cross paths with him. 
Uh, and and as Taylor thinks over her blindness and her fatigue, she detects wonkiness near her and realizes that it's space warping caused by a psycho vista. She finds a clone on a rooftop naked and horribly malformed. Yeah, and something I don't want us to forget as we fight these clones in the next chapter and then going on is that the clone is Vista. Like, as much as it's changed, as much as it's evil, it has all her memories, all her feels, all her worries. It remembers everything about her, her crush on Gallant. It, it's alive. It, it is It is a living thing that that is part of this character that we like and know so much but yes it's monstrous it's terrible it's evil but this just complicates everything and it's mm-hmm. it's just a, a really different kind of battle and and in the next chapter we're going to see these people go like full force against these clones um and and do some pretty horrific things but they're clones but they're they're also people <laughs> like it, yeah. it's i i love that we've been set up for this it's really good and i want to make sure we don't forget it you know in next chapter but throughout this fight yeah, this is just a horrifying power on on all levels. Yeah. So Rachel has uh, that as they're as they're running and, and this this vista is kind of closing in on them. Rachel has Bentley body check the van, uh, which uh, stops it and pre- prevents it from being crushed by a falling building. So the the evil vista starts trying to collapse all the surrounding buildings, while a second one forms the street into barriers around our heroes, and a third one, the grotesquely tall, twisted one seems to have a power that involves kind of twisting material away into wisps of dust. And as the chapter closes, Skidder thinks about how similar Noelle's strategy is to the one that uh, she herself would be employing, uh, delegating tasks to her troops while pursuing another agenda herself. <laughs> My favorite part of Taylor's like eternal struggle between self-awareness and compartmentalization is when she readily compares herself to the horrible monster she's fighting against. It's like, oh, yeah, I'd I'd do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. So, yeah, move right into 18.6. Skidder calls in reinforcements on her armband just before Disintegration Vista uses her power on on that armband. Uh, Tattletale tells Gru to use his power on anything that gets broken down like that because the dust is radioactive. Yeah, so after five chapters of setup, 18.6, we're finally here. It's it's battle time. Um, but this is actually really more of a skirmish than like an actual clash of the Titans. Um, but um, <laughs> I, I like, you know, we this is really the first chapter with action. And we almost immediately see how much escalation there is because th- she destroys this armband radioactive to the point where it would kill you if you're exposed to it and we're suddenly like holy shit like we're here again like we're up to this super escalated level of action and that will continue throughout the rest of this chapter Mm -hmm. yeah and and like you said we still don't have noelle herself on the scene so yeah the first vista clone seems to be better than uh, normal vista was at large-scale manipulations maybe a bit less limited by the manta effect and can seemingly operate without seeing what she's working on. And the second one seems closest to regular Vista. So Battle, battle Commander Skidder uh, designates the first one as the primary target. Raymancer blasts the first one in the chest, and Tecton launches Grace uh, at her to finish the job. Uh, Regent and Rachel go after the second one, and the rest take on the radioactive one. The radioactive one hits Raymancer with radiation pretty badly uh, before Gru can stop it. And then Gru copies Raymancer's power uh, to try to shoot her down, but he can't really use it very well. Wanton activates his power 
which causes him to disintegrate into a flurry of powerful telekinesis, battering the radioactive Vista with debris. Taylor then has her bugs chew through an artery on the radioactive one, and she quickly bleeds out. Matt, you just... Um, she really casually discussed Taylor chewing through a fucking artery <laughs> with her bugs now. That's a thing she can do now. Holy yeah. shit. At least in this moment, though, Taylor has the grace to, to be like, that was disturbing how I felt the blood dribble down her body and the blood spurt out. And, and, right. and like this, this, this basically what as far as like her senses can tell is, is, a, is, is a young girl like bleeding out and dying and, and wailing. Um, yeah, and that's why I wanted to bring that 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 fact yeah. up earlier. That yeah, these are as terrible and monstrous and horrible as they are. They are also little real living girls mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time. And yeah, I, I, and I like that throughout these beats, Taylor is feeling bad. Everything as everything happens, as they kill them, as they're forced to do these things. And yes, it's escalation. Yes, we've increased the the viciousness of battle, but. Um, Taylor's always kind of aware of it. Yeah, yeah. So the the second Vista is hobbled by Regent, and then Imp tasers her, and Bentley just kind of crunches her where she falls. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Which, yeah, Rachel does not care much about. Um, Skitter gets some bugs into the chest cavity uh, of the Vista <laughs> fighting Grace, <laughs> and then somebody nabs her with a gob of containment foam. Um, and then... Uh, <laughs> Despite the fact that she's been caught and disabled, one of the heroes executes her anyway, because those are the orders. Yeah. Escalation. Here we go. Um, And again, so as mentioned in the last chapter, these clones are evil copies of a real person. They are alive. And we do see Taylor struggling with the decisions to ruthlessly kill them and fill their chest cavities with bugs. And holy shit, I can't believe I just said that. Um, (laughs) and, And is it necessary to do this? Yes, I think so. Is it a crime? No, I don't think so. But it is slightly disturbing that this is where we are now, that that we're in a place where we have to do these. We have to like the, the level of cape on cape violence here is ramped up from anything else we've seen besides the Slaughterhouse Nine. And it's it's God, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think due to the nature of these creatures, there's probably like even less chance of rehabilitation of them than there would oh, be yeah. of like of like Jack, because Jack was at least like actually human at one point. These are just kind of creatures. But it's it's still I, I it's really hard to articulate why it's unnerving um, this idea that you you do have to kill this thing, which is basically a person it's just a twisted person yeah well i mean wildbow reinforces that he has not only do we hear taylor struggle with it but we hear the wails of these vistas we hear them suffer and scream and die mm-hmm. just like real humans do yeah um to constantly remind us that yes these are human beings as much as they are mutated things um yeah i mean and i think i think this is kind of challenging us i think intentionally because like the last like we're going to get we're going to get to Raymancer just apparently being doomed now and 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 Wanton apparently maybe being doomed now. And like the the last time we saw this level of just casual death was fighting an Endbringer. Mm-hmm. Um, and but this is not that not exactly. I mean, they're fighting copies of, of actual capes. So this is we're seeing like if a cape fully doesn't hold back and. Mm-hmm for the first time ever no holds barred this is what it looks like and it's 
horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, uh, Raymancer Tattletale says that there's a, a pretty good chance he'll die. Uh, Wanton is, is stuck in his telekinetic form since he's full of radioactive dust. And, and if he were to transform back to his human form, he would be full of radiation. Um, and apparently he's never sustained his telekinetic form for long. So um, it might uh, might not end well. So, yeah, yeah so so they... Um, they leave the irradiated capes behind and the rest of them race off to try to reach ballistic. The armband interrupts them with a message though. I Dolan has found Noel and he's requesting that everyone hold position. Skater and Tattletail don't like this because they believe that Idolan is taking a really big risk here for sort of egoistic reasons. Um, and Tattletail says he's desperate. He's losing his powers. He knows putting himself in dangerous situations makes his power stronger, like how one of my teammates gets a little stronger when outraged and another gets a little stronger when feeling protective. Fighting Noel is nearly as dangerous as fighting Inbringers. So I'm guessing outraged is Rachel and protective is Gru. Um, is that what you got from that? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, that's the most uh, appropriate, I think. I mean, it's interesting because it, be, it could be one of those switcheroos where it's not what you think it is yeah but, that's true uh, i mean that makes sense to me grew and protective seems so obvious and yeah it kind of reinforces his need to constantly be around taylor to massage her shoulders and make sure she's okay <laughs> because his trauma is related to the, the desire to be protective and like we've said so many times your power is related to your trauma and therefore yeah. your power is almost encouraging you to perform the actions that relate the most to your trauma yeah that makes sense i mean i think that i think you're right um the undersiders basically they're they're arguing with with uh um grace and tecton that that they need to they need to head on they can't afford to 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 hold back um and they basically win the argument on the basis that uh they've been successful enough at what they do that they have some credibility <laughs> <laughs> so yeah hero and villain alike discard their armbands which are the one thing identifying them as not horrible clones to be killed on sight and they head on. Yeah, and this is where we tie back to our kill order stuff, because by doing this, by disobeying this order, the Undersiders have basically just given in and allowed a kill order to be placed on them um, for effectively, as we know, doing the right thing, or at least our current understanding of the right thing. Uh, Idolin is, is putting people in risk by by doing what he's doing, and they're trying to stop him. So again, the, the, the thing about kill orders that makes me nervous is is being wielded like this. Yeah, right. So yeah, they, they drive, they quickly find Idolin and Noel by le leveraging their powers. Um, and and Skitter thinks, I only caught two words as he spoke to her. Coil was one, Cauldron was another. <laughs> what a perfect way to end the chapter. The perfect yep. way. Um, I, I, my guess here is that Idolin is trying to talk down Noel, uh, letting her know that Coil, who was going to help you, was working for Cauldron, us... Um, and that Cauldron us can still help you. So there's no reason you need to do this because we can help you. We can do that. Um, I, I don't think it's going to go very well. <laughs> and I don't think that uh, Taylor and company now knowing this information uh, is going to uh, set settle very well with Coil or with Cauldron either. So it's, it's such a it's such a perfect cliffhanger. I'm almost glad like. Any other week, we would just go dive right into the next chapter now, but we're stopping here, and I actually think it's a really great place to stop. Yeah, I agree. The next chapter is an interlude anyway, so um, it yeah, makes well, perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah. All right, Scott. Um, that was that was the first half of Arc eighteen. Um, yeah. All pretty pretty awesome. So so let's let's hear those speculations. All right. Uh, once again, nothing confirmed. Uh, old speculations. Nothing at all. Although although um, there are some that I I that have not been confirmed as wrong, but I now think are wrong. But we'll we'll go through that another time. Um, okay. I do have only one new new one this week. Um, it, I, I hesitate to make make speculations when we're on these half arc ones because i don't get to see the full scope of of what we're doing sometimes so it's a little harder but the one i do have is that i'm changing my opinion on how the world's gonna end um my opinion is now that jack slash uh inadvertently or no is going to uh do something to uh, the most powerful woman in the world lisette um, and, and, and his way of breaking and damaging and destroying people is going to happen to her who in turn, after broken and damaged and destroyed, will order Scion to end the world or to destroy the world or to kill all people. Um, and that's going to be the result that brings the end of the world. Our, our beacon of goodness turned to badness. I think that's very fitting and it seems to gel with what we learn in that interlude chapter. So that's what I'm guessing. All right. Always enjoy those sweet, juicy speculations, Scott. <laughs> and, uh, and with that, that wraps up our coverage of the first half of arc 18 queen. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Oops, that's me not paying attention. Uh, you, you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod, where you can hear my weekly live read-throughs of the arc uh, the week before we cover it on the podcast. Uh, my personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, that's D-A-L-Y, and Matt's is at mordinamail, and that's spelled with letters. Mm-hmm. Yep, figure it out. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, all of our writing, essays, film and TV criticism and more at DailyPlanetFilms.com. This week, we have a new podcast over on our main Daily Planet feed where uh, Michael and I discuss some of 2017's Netflix original films. We basically looked at the movie slate for the weekend in theaters. Uh, nothing was good, so we decided, well, let's talk about some Netflix films. Yeah, and I really enjoyed you guys' um, level of, of, of arguing with each other. It was <laughs> So uh, there's this interesting thing where Matt and I generally have similar opinions and, and, and uh, get along when we discuss movies. Uh, Michael and I, on the other <laughs> hand, um, have very differing opinions and tend to argue. Another great example of that is the uh, Quentin Tarantino episode where we get in like a drag down <laughs> fight about uh-huh. Kill Bill. Um, it's really good. I enjoy it a lot. I like I like arguing. So, yeah, um, well, it, it, I, I laughed a lot, actually, because it's 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 it's, yeah. it's not uncomfortable arguing. It's it's like funny arguing. Yeah, I like that you called it uh, Siskel and Ebert t- type level where it's it's not vitriolic, yeah. but they are they are definitely agreeing with each other, disagreeing yeah. with each other. Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, so we also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Daily Planet Films. That's D-A-L-Y. And if you like what we do here and want to help make sure we keep doing more, please consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks this week to new producer uh, um, Matthew at the $1 level, new associate producer 
uh, Orta Therox at the $10 level, level, and new senior associate producer, Andy, at the $20 level. Uh, yeah, thanks, Andy. Yeah, we really, really appreciate that, guys. Um, so, yeah, the first uh, We've Got Worm fan art contest uh, will have more or less wrapped up by the time this episode airs. And yeah. um, unless there's an upset, it looks like the piece depicting the Undersider's base by Cyrix will be the winner. Um, these were all great submissions, but Cyrix will take the prize and uh, they will be awarded 50 bucks, uh, 50 American dollars, that is, plus a print of the winning artwork signed by Wildbo. Congratulations, Cyrix. Uh, we will be in touch with you soon via email. Yeah, and I think we're going to find a way because the only people that have seen those artworks so far is uh, patrons. So uh, we're going to find a way to also let other people see the winning artwork as well i'll probably post it to the website or something um and maybe we'll let them see the runners up as well to see what won and and maybe why it won um they were all really good i like them all a lot but yeah um we're we're gonna again if you if you didn't submit this time if you didn't like the theme or any of that we're gonna do this again so um i I think it was really fun and i hope we get more submissions like this in the, in the, the the future i really liked uh the the winner a lot so yeah me too and um, the voting on the new Daily Planet Book Club has also ended. The winning book is Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. That one, Matt, 50% of the vote or something. It blew everything out of the water. Yeah. Um, so as of Friday, uh, we've given everyone three weeks to read this book. Um, so if you want to read along with us, you can buy a copy of the book. We have a link on our website if you want to buy it there and help us. That'd be awesome. Um, but so we're going to give you three weeks to read it. A week before that time is up, we're going to open up questions. So you can send us questions at dailyplanetfilms at gmail.com or on Twitter at dailyplanetfilms. Um, and then we're going to do a live stream uh, kind of book club where Matt and I will talk and discuss the book and do similar things that we do to Worm, but obviously at a much higher level because we're discussing one whole book in one episode um and then the people that can get can tune in on the live stream can ask us questions we can have conversations back and forth with you guys um and then we'll release it in a podcast for people that can attend and uh at the time so we've talked about this for a while now i'm so excited about it i'm so glad we get to do it and it's coming up i'm i'm mad i'm gonna have to get used to being on camera yeah, me too. I'm going to have to uh, sort, sort that out. <laughs> the thing that's going to be weird is I use my hands a lot when I talk recording <laughs> podcasts and no one can see it. So it's OK. But when it's on camera, it's going to be a little weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the next step, Scott. Yeah. And, and and we're going to say this again at the time, but this is the first time we've tried to do this. So we're going to have some growing pains with it. But uh, the, the, those of you that are going to participate, um, we appreciate your patience and and uh, we're so excited about it. It's going to be great. Yeah, it'll, it'll be fun, even if it's a disaster. In fact, it may be fun <laughs> because it's a disaster. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a lot of exciting stuff happening uh, with with the Daily Planet and, and with, you know, v- via Patreon. And speaking of awkward segues um, <laughs> and, and Patreon, uh, make sure you stop by Wildbo's Patreon page and toss some money there because he is the guy that makes this whole thing possible. Yeah, and you can't spare any cash. That's fine. Uh, there are still other ways you can help us out. Um, I, I know you guys are constantly making the case to all your friends that haven't read this book for some stupid reason that they should read it. Um, when you're making that case, maybe tell them about us, too. There's this little podcast that goes along great with it that will enhance your reading experience. Yeah. Um, so you can it's like a dessert. 
Yeah, there you go. Uh, also, iTunes listeners, hook us up with a rating and a review. Um, we've gotten a few reviews in the past month, and because uh, some of the ones we had are pretty small, I'm going to read two of them this week. All right. So first up, we've got Faye Gooner, who gives us five <laughs> stars and says, made me realize how amazing Worm actually is. These guys pick up on tons of things I never thought about. Uh, thank you so much. And then we have Kronos27, who also gives us five stars and says, I love being able to relive the pure awesome that is Worm with you guys. Also, shout out to the Bayesian Conspiracy for leading me here. Um, thanks, both of you. Matt, that was the, the podcast you were on, right? Yeah, um, in fact, I'm going to be reporting another one of those in, in the near future. Awesome. FYI. Look at that yeah. cross-marketing. It works. So yeah. everyone go listen to that podcast and leave a review on their thing that says you came from us. Yeah. And then everyone wins. Yeah. And then it'll just make an infinite loop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Matt, but one, one of the things I really do love about these reviews, Matt, is on top of like the fact that they're so wonderfully nice to you and I and the work we do, like there's always this undercurrent of them just glowingly talking about how much they love Worm. And it just like reinforces to me that the Wild Bose fans are truly some of the best fans in the world. And it's just it's just a privilege to be even like a small part of that community. It's really it's really great. Yeah, I agree. He's he's he has I don't know how exactly, but but the, this community is is a delightful, a delightful little corner of the Internet. And we really lucked out um, by by being able to to participate in this to the degree yeah. that we have. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's it for us this week. Uh, next time, we'll finish up the remaining chapters of Arc 18 Queen. Bye bye. Why? But don't why but me. <laughs> it's, it's so fun to say. <laughs> Why but? <laughs> See? You it, love it. It is. You love it. it.